This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Aber Necessities. Aber Necessities provides disadvantaged families with the essential and basic necessities that no child should go without. Aber Necessities recognises the importance of meeting the basic needs of a child in order to give them the best start possible. We work closely with professionals from NHS, education and social work to support children living in poverty within our local community. Since the pandemic in March 2020, we have helped over 6,000 children and families across Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire. Sadly, right now, 18% of children living across the North East are living in poverty. If you would like to get involved to help us help children and families living across our city and shire, please contact the team by giving us a call on 077-19707-360 or visiting the website www.arbonsestes.co.uk to see how you can help because no child should go without. The choice you make today to support a child in need will truly change your life. Wednesday and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 16 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott and joining me this week as always it's Gavin Baxter and Graham Steele. Guys how's it going? Very well thank you. Give me one moment to watch the uh, Lewis Ferguson goal from Saturday once more. (sighs) Yeah great thank you. (laughs) And it's another busy episode this week as we take a look back over a hugely positive week for Stephen Glass and his side after picking up seven points from nine this week, which seemed to be a scarcely believable outcome after the horror show at Dens Park. We'll pick through the bones of the draw at Mordor and the Gorgie Title Express being derailed at Pataudry on Saturday. We'll then take a look at the women's team in their SWPL Cup quarterfinal tie against Hibs and take our regular look at the young team and to round up our loanies and their performances in the last week and after the break we're delighted to continue our series of interviews with ex-dons with an exclusive in-depth conversation with a boyhood Aberdeen fan who was signed by Sir Alex Ferguson went on to make 177 appearances for the Dons scoring three goals picking up a League Cup and Scottish Cup winners medal in the process before departing Pataudry in one of the most controversial moves in the history of the club it's David Robertson but first let's have a look at that double header from this week. Rangers 2, Aberdeen 2 at Mordor on Wednesday night and Aberdeen 2, Hearts 1 on Saturday. And other people have dissected the performance I Ibrox on Wednesday night. So my feeling, guys, is I don't think we've got a huge amount to add to what's already been said, except that just to praise the team that was put out on the pitch, having to deal with the number of injuries that we had, to go down to Ibrox in the circumstances, put on a great display where we end up being hugely disappointed not to take all three points. Anything that you guys want to add on that other than the fact that John Beaton is a cheating bastard? Uh, I think you missed the word dirty in front of cheating. Sorry, dirty cheating bastard. Yeah, we'll make that correction. Uh, no, I, it's it's a great result. And yeah, it was a little bit disappointing the way the game went. It almost felt like we dropped two points, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves uh, if we've got that point of view. So yeah, excellent result for, uh, for the club. And again, we mentioned it last week, this Frank uh, McAvenny pish 
just two fingers up to everyone who suggested there were sort of nonsense of that going on behind the scenes. I, I, just, I, I just don't think you can do that if people aren't pulling in the right direction. So excellent result. I think given that last week we were talking about being happy with a competitive defeat, to be coming away from Ibrox, um, disappointed to only be taking a draw, it speaks volumes of the performance. So given, as you said, the injuries, um, excellent, excellent, so proud. And on a scale of 1 to 10, how much did you enjoy Scott Brown becoming A, the second incarnation of Willie Miller at the back and also diving header, noising up the Bullen Road and the main stand? Lovely stuff. Well, who would have thought this would even be the best thing I've seen from Scott Brown all week? <laughs> this is true. We'll come on to that in a second. All round, great stuff on Wednesday night. For me, I don't think there was a weak player in the team. Um, maybe a few question marks with David Bates' role in, in both goals. But all in all, top dons, I think we're all 11 of the, of the guys who who started and the guys who came off the bench. A, a really, really good result. Like I say, given the circumstances, given the injuries we had, brilliant. And then moving on to Saturday, um, Stephen Glassell has been keen to build on the win against Hibs and that draw Ibrox, and he kept faith with the majority of the team that started at Rangers. The only change being the restoration of Marley Watkins to the starting 11 in place of Johnny Hayes. With the Dons keeping their 3-4-1-2 slash 3-4-3 shape with captain Scott Brown sitting in the centre of the back three. And all in all, a first half that delivered little in the way of quality from either side. How did you describe it again, Gavin? I feel that first half could have had football shut down. I, and I would not disagree with you on that. Um, Ryan Hedges breaking the hearts back line, but his low shot was well saved by Craig Gordon, being the only real clear-cut chance of a disappointing first half. Right on halftime, though, poor play on the ball by Hedges was compounded by a weak clearance by Scott Brown, allowing a simple pass to be played through the centre of the defence, leaving Ginelli one-on-one with Joe Lewis. And he rounded the big Englishman, who brought down the hearts winger, leaving Ken and Clancy with little option but to point to the spot. The resulting penalty kick dispatched well by Suter, beyond a despairing dive of Joe Lewis, allowing hearts to go in at halftime. An ill-deserved goal to the good. And Stephen Glass made a key change to the system at halftime, moving to a more fluid-looking 4-3-1-2 type formation with Scott Brown moving up into the midfield area. And the changes paid off instantly. A high-intensity start from the Don saw Scott Brown recover possession well, move the ball quickly to Dean Campbell, who fed Hedges down the left touchline. The Welshman's lofted cross around his countryman, Marley Watkins, who controlled the ball neatly on his knee before lashing a half volley high beyond Craig Gordon. Aberdeen's 450th goal in the SPFL Premiership since the league was formed, the second highest goal scorers at this moment in time. And Gordon produced a fine save to deny Ramirez five minutes later, although the American probably should have done better from only six, seven yards out. Ramirez was close again a matter of minutes later, a hitch kick volley a la Paolo De Canio for West Ham clipping Kingsley on the arm, flashing inches wide of the post. And Aberdeen grabbed the winner on 69 minutes. After a series of corners, the Dons delivered a textbook training ground routine with Hedges and Brown pretending to get in each other's way. Shades of Bayern 83, culminating in Brown shoving Hedges into the onrushing Bengame, who was meant to be tracking the run of Lewis Ferguson, who rose highest to smash a near post header beyond Gordon. An excellent piece of work from everyone involved. And I'm giddy even just talking about it again. Don saw out the remaining 20 minutes comfortably. Hearts never threatening and their day went from bad to worse when renowned scumbag part-time footballer and full-time pish power merchant Andy Halliday decided to lunge in at best pal Derek Ferguson's son on the main stand side, catching Ferguson high in the ankle, leaving the referee with little choice but to brandish a straight red. And that was it. The Dons derailing a heart side that offered little all day 
other than to pose the question about how such a limited side had gone 11 games unbeaten. Seven points from nine in the Dons up to sixth in the table with all eyes now on the home fixture against Motherwell next Saturday before the final international break of the calendar year. Gents, your thoughts? On the assumption that we're not in some sort of weird parallel universe and this is all real, it's been a hell of a week. A pretty tidy three points on Saturday. I think if we were all being honest, in different seasons gone past, when we were playing well, we were at the right end of the table, you'd still be saying three points against Hearts is a pretty tidy outcome. And again, it goes back to with everything that's been happening and sort of pressure around the club. Appreciate, um, you know, by your accounts, it wasn't necessarily the greatest game, first half in particular, but job done. And I really, really hope this can just be a bit of a springboard. I might be sounding a bit silly here, but I kind of don't want the international break to be approaching now. Whereas the last couple of times, I think we were all looking for a bit of respite. All in all, people have come in. We've had difficulties with injuries, very well documented. Uh, but the people who have come in and have stepped up to the mark and shown the manager that there's uh, other options in the team. And like Graham says there, after the first half it was for Hearts to go in 1-0 up, I was expecting nothing prickly good. So to come out in the way we did, react, show that character and that quality. Outstanding. Seven points from these last three fixtures. I think to be fair, none of us expected that. I think very few did. And some critics of... Uh, have been made to eat their words. The the three of us, together with Tom Watt on episode 14, which was the one we did after Dens Park, I think we all agreed that whilst I don't think any of us thought it was necessarily the right thing for Glass to be removed from post, I think we'd all agreed it was going to be very, very difficult for him to, to, to turn things around after how that game went. And it's fair to say he's popped plenty of credit back into the bank in the last week. That's a, a hell of a return. And it's amazing to think that we're actually sitting here really disappointed it's not nine points from nine. And, Let's have a bit more of a deep dive on the game itself on Saturday. I mean, the first half, I think there's very little talk about in it. I thought it, I thought it made perfect sense for him to stick with basically the same team that he had at, at Ibrox, with the exception of bringing Watkins back in. That shape did as well on Wednesday night. It was clear, though, it wasn't quite working as well as it had in the game against Hebs and against Rangers in that first half. So credit, again, must go to the manager and, and his coaching team for, once again, outfoxing and outschooling Robbie Nielsen this season. That's two halftime system changes we've made this season against them that have paid dividends. Really good stuff to see. And it's something we've been, I guess, a little bit critical of in recent weeks again, was that in the early stages of the season, Glass seemed quite keen and able to make in-game adjustments. And that appeared to kind of disappear a little bit. Came back against Hibs last week where we did it. We shuffled the, the pack around when injuries forced us to do so. And, and did it again on Saturday. And um, excellent stuff. The changes worked to a treat so the, the manager deserves a huge amount of credit for that yeah completely agree I think um, the three at the back system especially with you know I know a lot of people talking about Dean Campbell perhaps having a future at left back or left wing back but ultimately it's still two um, central midfield players playing in these full back positions combine that with taking another midfielder out of the pack into the uh, into the back three I think it did limit us in terms of our attacking threat yeah, uh, that was that's reflected in the fact that it was just really beyond Ryan Hedge's chance, nothing really to talk of as far as Aberdeen attacking. And equally, the same goes for Hearts. I mean, we contained them very well up until that you know last minute. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, things have got to uh, go look at it um, in real terms and say that Stephen Glass made the, the right call. The adjustment at halftime allowed us to get our foot on the ball and take control of the game. And as you say, we got our dividends, we got our rewards for it. Yeah, I don't think I've got much to, to add. Unfortunately, we're unable to attend. I'm just picking up from 
chatting to you guys and looking around at match sports and what people are saying online, stuff like that. But it doesn't really matter which way you slice it, going to go behind and then coming back. And I know a couple of points you've made around how earth did Hearts go 11 games unbeaten, but the bottom line is they were in much, well, they were further up the table than we were. Our form wasn't great. Our habit of conceding first had been biting us most of the season. So to turn that around is really good. It's also really encouraging to see you know, if the manager is, for whatever reason, I think we were all quite quite enjoying the, the changes and the early changes and in-game changes at the beginning of his, his tenure, uh, or more so rather the, the beginning of this season. It felt like that had been lacking from the previous regime. And then, you know, for whatever reason, that, that all stopped. I think, don't think we were alone. and been a little bit frustrated where we're watching a match, nothing, nothing's going our way and nothing being changed. So the fact that he seems to be maybe reverting back to that, whether I don't know if it's confidence coming back or whatever it is, it's good to see an Aberdeen manager being able to uh, implement a change that outvoxes the opposition and then the players on the pitch knowing what to do and going and doing it. Um, it's just really satisfying. I think as well, Stephen Glass spoke about this in the post-match interview about having complete confidence in all of his squad. And, you know, a manager is going to say that in public anyway. But I wonder if maybe, you know, the performance of some of the fringe players in, you know, I'm thinking Wraith Rovers especially, made him lose um, a lot of faith in people. The last few games have shown, you know, he obviously trusts Ojo to do a job pretty much anywhere. But in particular, Dylan McGeeck coming in and the way that he's performed, I think maybe we'll let Stephen Glass or maybe reaffirm with him that there is a group of players here that, well, one, there's extra quality out with the first 11. And two, yeah, as you say, people are willing to and able to make a, to make those changes that can uh, positively affect the game for Aberdeen. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, Gavin, actually. I think we're maybe starting to see now Stephen Glass and the coaching team start to filter through the squad, I guess, and settle on a core group of players that they feel they can trust. I don't think it's any surprise, per se, that we've not seen Teddy Jenks since the the sending off at St Mirren. I'm pretty sure he's not featured since then. Jet's not had a look-in in the last few weeks. It feels to me, like you say, that we're maybe now starting to find a settled a settled lineup, a settled group of core players who will be the, the, the core of the team going forward, which is great. I mean, one thing you touched on, Dean Campbell there briefly. I think that Dino deserves a huge amount of credit for the performance he put in at Ibrox on Wednesday night. That's not an easy situation to be put in when he's not played a lot of football this season. He's not a natural left back. He did very well in that position against Hearts at Tynecastle earlier in the season. James Tavenier is probably as much as it, you know, as much that pains me to say it. I'm going to say the best, the most attacking threat coming from right back in the league. Nullified Tavenier completely. Didn't give him a sniff. Thought he did excellent in that role. I thought yesterday he he was fine on Saturday. A couple of slack passes here and there, but I thought on the whole he did a job. And there was a lot of people who were saying that the only reason he was in at Ibrox was for us to keep the record going about youth team graduates in the starting 11 that may or may not be the case but even if that is the case he's done a he's done a great job and given the manager something to think about in terms of you know that is that potentially a role for Dean Campbell going forward that makes it now after yesterday's match against Hearts 3,410 games in a row an unbeaten streak that goes all the way back to April 1949 Aberdeen have had a youth team graduate in the starting lineup not just in the squad in the starting lineup. That's an incredible record. 
And um, fair play to Dino. I thought he did okay there on Saturday. And I do wonder, I, th- I think I saw somebody talk about this. I think he's going to find it very difficult to get a spot in the midfield area at the moment. Um, I think depending on what happens with the squad going forward, Ferguson, Brown, whether he's going to play in the centre of defence or whether he plays centre midfield, are probably stick-ons. I think Dylan McGeer has played himself right into the manager's thoughts now, deservedly so. The manager trusts Ojo. Um, I think he likes him to, to to carry out tactical work for him. It might be that that kind of left-back area might not be a bad spot for Dino to get some game time. Um, similar to, I guess, what happened with a former Aberdeen captain who was a centre midfielder but spent an early part of his career playing right back just to even get game time before being moved back into centre midfield. And Fair play to, to Dino. I thought he did, thought he did really well. Yeah, I think those are all um, fair points. I mean, maybe one point just sort of occurred to me when you were talking is, you know, people, people have been saying manager needs time and everyone's been telling us he needs time. But it never occurred to me because I would always be focused on, well, how hard can it be for players to just play in a system? But maybe actually part of that time is the manager needs time to figure out, you know, who, who can he rely on, who's going to come in? Because it's not always maybe the guys you think. And he doesn't have that. I know they've got training and stuff, but there's absolutely not the same as picking an 11 in training and getting a friendly or whatever. So maybe it has just taken him a run of games because I guess he's got to give people a chance. But unfortunately, he has to do it in front of the cameras, you know, Saturday afternoon when there's three points in the line. And if it doesn't work out, uh, we're all saying, I oh, doesn't know what he's doing. And maybe, maybe he absolutely does. And it just takes time for players to, you know, because some of them maybe thought, oh, I'm in the first team anyway. I was before and things have changed. And others maybe thought, oh, I'll never get in. Then And then they do get in and they're kind of thinking, right, I don't want to lose that. So maybe it's just, players try to figure themselves out and you know who really wants a run in the team but yeah and on Dino in particular it's always good to see sort of a local guy I know he sometimes he gets a bit of stick and he hasn't played much but if all he does this season is get called in now and again and he and he does a good job then I'm sure he'd be disappointed not to play much but we're all delighted to see him come in and do a, do a decent job so yeah it's just really strange to be sitting here still sort of absolutely buzzing on it is half past eight on a Sunday and we're all still <laughs> chipper and thinking ah oh, this is ace I mean I should mean that that doesn't mean that we've you know job done turned the corner we've cracked it but uh, it's been a really enjoyable week of football absolutely um I think when it comes to Campbell I would say he's been in and around the first team for what feels like a good number of years now and never really had a solid run of games and I would say it's the same as I think we were talking about Connor McLennan at the beginning of the season. It's a big season for Campbell. Like you say, I don't think he's going to force his way into the centre midfield just purely down to a lack of opportunities unless we get majorly hit with injuries. Because, um, you know, you can add the players you've mentioned there. Matty Longstaff's also here, presumably, you know, with some kind of um, intention that he's involved in and around the first team. I'd be surprised if Teddy Jenks is still here past January. Um, and that might just prompt Glass to look elsewhere. So yeah, um, Campbell, it might might not be his preferred position, but you know, you've mentioned the um ex-Aberdeen captain Andrew Considine had to shift positions. Russell Anderson had to play right back when he was a centre back. It happens in football. And if there's a chance for him to make his way into, into the team on a more permanent basis, then he's just got to grab that with uh with both hands. It's interesting because I also think it, it leads to if we're going to play a back three and people have commented on this, I think Jack McKenzie could be a natural left-sided centre back in a back three. So, which then I guess maybe perhaps frees up 
maybe McCrory could go at the right side of the back three. You can get one of Bates and Gallagher and then we get Scott Brown back in the midfield. I'm sure it's, it's, it's just good to know that we now have options to talk about rather than sitting here thinking about, well, should this guy be here or not? You know, I was going to move on to the game again, but you've just made a very good point, Gav, about Jack McKenzie. And I'm going to throw this out here. This might be a controversial opinion. and I'm not saying this is what I think. I'm just going to throw it out to you guys to, to give your views on it. Obviously, we've missed Calvin Ramsey and Jack McKenzie now for the last, well, I'm going to say the last three games. Um, Ramsey obviously played 20 minutes or 22 minutes against Hibbs, but to all intents and purposes, wasn't playing. Have we benefited in a way from the, the two of them missing out? Have we become a bit more solid because these guys haven't been playing? There was a lot of goals earlier in the season when it felt to me that the two of them were being quite badly exposed. We've kind of had to stumble on this because we've, we've had injuries, but I wonder if we're looking a bit more solid as well because we've got a little bit more experience kicking around the team. I think there's definitely merit to that. Um, I feel that ultimately both of them were exposed by the system we were playing rather than, you know, their inexperience. That's how I feel about it. I think the system was killing them. Yeah. But the nice thing is that we can now sit, I think we sat here for a while and said, well, these two are probably undroppable. Whereas we now know that's not necessarily the case. And we don't have to, you know, basically burn these guys out given how little you know, senior football they've actually played. I think, yeah, I think there's merit in your point. I don't think that they're at fault or responsible for goals that have been conceded, you know, solely. So yeah, I, I think ultimately, yeah, it's just, it's actually, it's the change in shape is the bigger, is the bigger part in, uh, in why we're looking more solid. But as I say, nice to know we've got options. Yeah, uh, just for the avoidance doubt, for anyone listening, my view is not that it's either of those two. I think the system was killing them. I think you're right. I think if we decide to go with a three more long-term, McKenzie, to me, looks like he's got the build to play as a left-sided centre-back on the three. I think Ramsey would suit playing in a kind of winger role rather than having to be asked too much defensive work. Um, it'd be interesting to see what happens when when these guys are fit and are able to come back into the team. It also gives the option, it's like, say, McKenzie was to play on the left side and McCrory plays on the right side. You have that option that, well, they can just step out of defence and make these mm-hmm. overlapping runs a la... Chris Wilder's Sheffield United team had the overlapping centre-backs, you know, because they've got the athleticism. So again, it's, you know, more options. It's what Steve Clark asks, like, a tyranny to do for Scotland. So it's, it's, it certainly provides options, um, which, is, which is always good. Looking at the game itself again, I mean, the first goal for Aberdeen's a great goal, really, really well worked. Great ball in, beautiful bit of control by Marley Watkins and a fine finish. I mean, that'll do him a world of good as well, getting his first goal back in his second spell. I was very impressed with Watkins across the board on Saturday, but that just capped off an excellent performance. Yeah, I was pleased to see him get that. I think we were, same with the first time round, we were all of the opinion that he's probably not, he's not going to be our goal scorer. It would appear that Ramirez has that that position currently, but he does offer an awful lot to the team. You want him in, if he can chip in with a few goals, that's always going to be really good. Um, so yeah, I was pleased for for that reason alone, actually, say like the confidence thing. That, I mean, he's probably got an idea that he's been playing reasonably well, but it's not the same is actually just having your name on the score sheet. So, and it was really tidy finish as well. So it's good to know that he's got that in his locker. Yeah, I thought Marley Watkins once again was excellent um, against Hearts. And we've spoken with Al Stavrum and Duncan Shearer about the importance of getting getting your first goal of the season, first goal of his, you know, second spell. Going to do him the world of good, but he should also know that beyond that, his performances have been excellent and he brings so much to the team. Players with less ability, less composure will just, you know, lash at it, first of all, or not really know what to do. So to have the awareness to just step back from 
I think Halkett was the defender closest to him. Just step back, take the ball down, give himself a little bit of room, and then you know, putting the ball past Craig Gordon is not the easiest thing in the world to do, and he did it very well. So, well done, Marley. Great stuff. And then let's just sit back and enjoy that second goal all over again. I don't even know what else I can say about it that's not already been said this weekend, except Graham. I think you came up with an absolute pearl before we started recording, which I just think you have to go with again. Oh, yeah. I was saying, yeah, it's absolutely delightful to score a shithouse goal against a shithouse team. I don't think I can derive any more satisfaction from any... You know, the Watkins one was really nice, but a shithouse goal against Hearts, I will take that over anything else any day of the week. It's just so beautifully constructed. And everybody that's involved in that goal should be immensely proud of themselves because, joking aside, there's so many intricacies into that that could go wrong. Every single part of that has to go right. Huge amount of credit needs to go to Dylan McGee for getting his cross absolutely spot on. The timing of everything was just beautiful. I mean, I don't even know what else to say about it. It was just just glorious. We've uh, Credit to Alan Russell. Gav, you're going to have to do some serious retractions on your episode 14 comments on this one, I think. Once again, I do not recall talking about <laughs> Alan Russell. It looks like a nice big plate of humble pie you've got there. <laughs> I mean... I do not recall talking about Alan Russell. <laughs> That's a few goals now we've scored. We, we got one obviously at St Mirren with the block. Scott Brown's goal at Ibrox on Wednesday night comes around from a block. That's another one at the weekend. But the great thing about it is it's all very different types of block that we're engineering which is making it very difficult for referees to actually ping us on it. Because if you watch, there's an angle from the goal on Saturday, which is taken from the Richard Donald stand end. Kevin Clancy's standing pretty much dead centre of the 18-yard box. He's watching. He's got a great view of everything going on. But there is so much chaos going on, there's no chance he can pick out exactly what's happened. And even the Hearts players don't really seem to understand what's happened. There's very little in the way of appeals by them. They seem utterly bemused by it as well. It's just an excellent piece of... Tom Foolery. I think one thing that's maybe gone unnoticed as well is uh, the importance of David Bates in the goal as he takes Craig Halkett, who's probably Hart's best yes. you know, defensive player in the air, completely away from the goal. Basically drags him to like the right side of the penalty box. I'll just say this again. Dylan Begiak's deliveries from all set pieces were outstanding on Saturday. Part of just an all-round excellent performance from him. Yeah, I was going to wait to talk about Dylan McGee, but it's a good time to do it just now. That's another excellent performance. Obviously, he came in against uh, Hebs, did well, performed excellently at Ibrox. And then on Saturday, I thought, first half was, was, was a really stuffy first half in the midfield anyway. Second half really turned it on, really showed what he's about. And I think it gives us real options again in, in the centre of the park now around, I, I feel that we can feel comfortable to push Brown back into the centre of midfield and not uh, the centre of defence, sorry, not worry about losing a presence in the centre of the park now. Um, and McGeek has got more legs about him, gets around the pitch well, technically excellent. I'm really hopeful he can stay fit and get a run of games together. We spoke about Dylan McGeek at the very first episode with Graham Hunter that a player like McGeek seems to suit the, I'm going to use the inverted commas again, philosophy that we're looking to try and implement. And it would be really good to see Mickey get a run of games and show us what he can do because the guy's been here now for what two seasons I think uh two and a half I think this is last year or, or eight, a season and a half I can't or maybe he, maybe he, 18 months I can't quite think yeah. yeah he came in in the January transfer window in 2020 didn't he 
Uh, I want to say 19, but I could be wrong on that. I honestly can't remember. I think the point you're about to make, which we all agree with, is he's been here for far too long for what we've seen of him, mainly because he's been curtailed by injury. So with a bit of luck, if that's him up and running now, you know, in terms of fitness and maybe fits into a, a style or a team that maybe, you know, focuses on his strengths rather than his weaknesses, then uh, it's the old Jimmy Calderwood. He's like a new signing, isn't it? Absolutely. January 2020. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought he's made his debut against Dumbarton, I think, in the Scottish Cup. Yeah, so he must have signed a two-and-a-half-year deal. So, yeah. so And it's a big it's a big season for him, then. He's out of contract to the end of the season. I'm sure that he would also quite like to probably put down some roots somewhere, I guess, and, you know, settle at a club and, again, an opportunity to show what he can do. And I don't think there's any better place for him than Aberdeen at the moment, um, given the way that we want to play football. The thing that I've, I was really impressed over the course of the week is... It was three very different performances that we needed to put in to get the points out of all those games against Hebs. I think there was a real onus on us to come out and get after Hebs, and we did that against Rangers. Like I say, with with the occasion, with you know Walter Smith um, passing the day before, a lot of emotion. Ibrox going into that game with the injuries we had, everything going against us, you would imagine unbelievable to go two goals up there as quickly as we did, and then and then see that out. Fantastic performance. And the thing I was really impressed with at Ibrox on Wednesday night as well was in the second half when we were 2-1 up and Rangers were pushing obviously to try and get an equaliser. Whenever the ball broke to us, there was no, not once did we attempt just to shell the ball up the park and just sit back and wait for it again. We tried to play our way out of trouble more and more times than, than, than we didn't. And more often than not, we got up the pitch quite successfully doing that. And it really gave the guys a respite that for me is a massive sign of progress in what the team are trying to do and then it's hearts a completely different type of performance a real dogfight of a game first half going to go down the first time we've done that we've been down a goal in this little run again so it would be very easy for the heads to go down a little bit but some real resilience some real determination to come back from that it would have been easy for the heads to go down it's been a hard week with the injuries we've had it's three very very tough games I was worried that we might run out of legs a little bit actually on Saturday. And the contrary was true. I thought we looked a stronger outfit in the second half on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. Got nothing, nothing further to add there. Yeah. Just absolutely, absolutely amazing. And um, I don't know if uh, we want to be the ones to provide the service or if there's just a lot of like introspection and um, reflection going on at Tynecastle, but fuck me. Hearts were dreadful. They weren't very good, were they? For a team that's been unbeaten all season. Although I think that's them now four games without a win. I think they've, I think they drew three coming into playing against us. And I, I can see why they're unbeaten to an extent. They're very stuffy. They, they play in a very tight way. Beningame, um in the centre of the park is a very, very good player. He's the only player in that team I would take at Aberdeen. Um, I can see why they've done all right because he's excellent at breaking up play in the centre of the park I think it's clear they're probably missing the goals of Boyce up front I was going to say we probably got lucky that Boyce wasn't playing because the, uh, the, the your man that was playing number 21 don't know his name sorry fella not brilliant yeah I know what you're saying but at the same time Hearts didn't create a chance I know but I think if they'd had a smarter better player to link up play they would have had you know been able to bring the ball up further to the pitch in saying that you know GMS I don't think really touched the ball he was anonymous. It was a very typically anonymous Gary McKay Stephen performance of pathology, one we saw all too often, I would suggest. Yeah, absolutely. On his day, he was really quite good, but very rarely did you get him on his day. 
yeah, it was one of these guys. Um, it was fine enough in patches for Aberdeen, but hasn't really gone on to do anything better than Aberdeen. When you see him back, and he's anonymous, I suppose he could have caused us a bit of bother. But he's also the kind of guy that I certainly felt like when he's playing for Aberdeen, you could um, you could get at. As in, you know, Scott Brown could have probably put in a couple of tackles early on in him, and he would have faded out of the game. So yeah, it, it's just like you say, it's, it's really good and. It's generally been the stuffy, sit-in, grind-it-out, sneaker-1-nil teams that we've struggled against. And to actually get through that match like you described as a dogfight, those are the kind of games, you know, certainly going back a few weeks, where we might not have capitulated, but we would have got overrun and we wouldn't have got anything out of it. If we can actually start battling through those types of games, that's really encouraging because a lot of people are going to come up here and try and make it like that. So I think we've said a few times, as many other people pointed out, we need to find a way to win in those situations it's alright looking good when you can maybe attack a team that's giving you space um, or maybe is a bit frail at the back but a team that's pretty stuffy and hard to beat you need to find a way of getting in between them and you know certainly on Saturday they managed to do that so I think yeah final point is the fact that you've seen like three different performances ignoring the results it's encouraging that that's beating different teams in different ways which hopefully we can take into the, the remainder of the season and that gives us a few options so we're less worried about coming up against such and such a team because you think, oh, well, that's fine. We played like that before and we were able to get a win, so now he's got a, a way of changing it up. Well, that's a very good point because I think a lot of us were wondering whether or not the the style of play that we were looking to implement was going to be capable of being implemented in the Scottish top flight in games like yesterday, where hearts come in and they do what hearts do. And the resounding answer to that in the second half is, yes, we can do that and it can work. And that's a huge, huge positive as well. Um, before we just move on, Andy Halliday. What more needs to be said? I mean, what a fucking scumbag. I, I know there's the old, oh, he's not that type of player. You know, there's the sort of the mantra, usually from commentators and pals in the press, but he absolutely 100% is that type of player. Um. Uh, yeah, I think probably probably enough's been said online for what people think of Andy Halliday. But on the end of uh, a two-one defeat, gets sent off, schooled again by Aberdeen. That's fine enough in my book. We we'll just leave him alone. I think I read somewhere yesterday he didn't even touch the ball when he was on the pitch. I did read that. I can't confirm it, but um, I did read that. Um, someone asked on Twitter um why he got sent <laughs> off. I and I feel my reply of essentially for being Andy Halliday was pretty a pretty accurate summation of what happened. Cowardly, disgusting challenge. Fuck him. Absolutely. Top dons yesterday. Um, I think Watkins walked away with man of the match from the uh he did the game sponsors. Um McGeeck, brilliant, McCrory, don't think put a foot wrong. Scott Brown, leadership, everything we wanted from Scott Brown in an Aberdeen shirt. I can't believe we forgot to even talk about Scott Brown throwing a cross turn at the corner flag. Oh, I guess Barry Mackay. Oh, there that was. Again, you know, he's done so much good stuff this week <laughs> that we just, you know, we have to like put it in some kind of hierarchy. But that's, you know, probably what, third or fourth in the list. I think so. Brilliant. Um, Coming for a lot of criticism this year. Lewis Ferguson, second half, along with everyone, drove us forward. Excellent performance. More of that, please, Lewis. Definitely. For me, hard to split between Brown, 
McCrory. I, I want the single Ross McCrory out again. I thought he was excellent. Didn't have a huge amount to do, but didn't put a foot wrong. One wayward hoof up the park aside, thought he was brilliant. And I think he's really, really starting to grow into that role. And I think that people might have to start, again, that humble pie might need to come out. I think that there might actually be a centre-half in there in this league. Marley Watkins was brilliant. Absolutely superb. The kind of player we've been crying out for for I don't know how long. Brilliant with the ball at his feet. Gets his body in, in amongst defenders in a way that I've not seen us do for a long time. It's almost John McGinn-esque in that he just gets his arse out and makes it very difficult for, for, for guys to get around him. Great goal. Him and Ramirez, I think, are really starting to, to develop a, a good understanding together. So that was brilliant. Lewis Ferguson, a guy who's come in for a lot of stick this season. And I think some of that has been deserved. I think for too many games this season, Ferguson has been found one thing has not been as good as we would normally expect. But that was a, a tremendous performance in the second half on, on Saturday, capped by a great header. And, and Dylan McGee, who talked about him earlier on, great stuff. More of that, please. Oh, and one more thing from a personal point of view, and I think Graham, you'll been upset to have not seen this in the last few minutes. Johnny Hayes making a, a bursting run down the left side and beating Michael Smith or whatever clown it was, like leaving him for dead. It was like, oh, just a, a lovely little walk down memory lane. Vintage stuff, all in all, a great week. Some credit popped back in the bank for Stephen Glass and the team. Fingers crossed we can finish the job from this little section of games next week against Motherwell and finish with 10 points out of a possible 12, which would have been which would have been ludicrous to suggest after the Dens Park debacle. So fair play to everyone involved at the club. And I get it right up to you to Frank McAvenny and co. So other news from Todger this week. On the women's side, a disappointing but not unexpected Halloween exit from the SWPL Cup at the hands of Hibernian. At a rain-soaked and wind-swept, the ball model stadium co-managers, Emma Hunter and Gavin Beath, delighted to welcome Bailey Hutchinson back to the starting lineup, and there was the welcome sight of club captain Kelly Forrest also returning to the bench. But early pressure from the away side told on 17 minutes when a through ball was played into Rachel Boyle. I don't know if she's got as good a hair transplant as her husband, who fired across Gail Gilmore into the bottom left corner to put Hibbs in front. And the Dons nearly responded immediately. Lauren Gordon denied by a last-ditch tackle by Notley when she was bearing down on goal. A second for Hibs followed on 32 minutes. Another through ball found Boyle again, and her initial effort was well saved by Gilmore. But the rebound broke kindly for Boyle, and she had the easiest of tasks to knock the ball home. And that's how it stayed until halftime. Hibs enjoying most of the possession, but the Dons looking sharp on the counter-attack. And on 50 minutes, Boyle thought she had her hat trick, but her effort was ruled out for offside. Gilmore pulling off some good stops from Hunter and then Leishman. And Aberdeen began to grow into the game. Ava Thompson's effort on 83 minutes fired wide of the goal. And Hibbs sought the match to progress to the semi-finals as Hibbs looked to extend their unbeaten record in the tournament to five seasons and take the cut back to Leith for the fifth year in a row. And it doesn't get any easier for the women as next up is a return to league duty in SWPL1 and the visit of reigning champions Glasgow City to Glebe Park on Wednesday night before an away trip to Motherwell next Sunday. And moving on to the young guys, no game for the young team this week, so moving into Lone Watch, no game either for Kevin Hanrati or Tyler McKayta as for Martin United's Highland League fixture against Keith was postponed due to weather. Elsewhere in the Highland League, Tom Ritchie was back in his sticks for Huntley, but Jack McIver didn't feature in the squad as Huntley went down 2-1 to the mighty Inverurie locals at Harlaw Park. Mon the Chuff Chuffs. And Jack Milne again missed out for a break in City as they ran out 7-3 winners over Strathspey Thistle. 
Connor Barris started with Kieran Nguyen on the bench as Kelty Hearts drew 1-1 with Sterling Albion. Barron playing the full 90 and Nguyen coming off the bench for the final 15 minutes as Kelty maintained their unbeaten record in the league and are now the only senior side in Scotland yet to taste defeat after the other Hearts got a well and truly deserved scudding at the hands of the mighty Dons. Mark Gallagher was an unused substitute for Athletic, snatched a late winner at Stair Park to see off Stranraer by three goals to two. Michael Ruth started for Falkirk, played for 71 minutes and grabbed the opener as Falkirk made a statement, beating Clyde 3-1 at Broadwood. And finally, Luke Turner kept his place in the starter lineup for Cliftonville as they snatched victory against Glenavon with two goals in the last 10 minutes to win by two goals to one and keep their spot at the summit of the Northern Irish Premiership. And moving in to our usual weekly segment, looking at the Fantasy Football Scotland ABZFP League. Guys, what sort of week for you? Well, a really bizarre week in many ways. Um, Wednesday, 64 points in the bank. So I thought pretty happy with that, even though I made a, a tactical gamble slash blunder in bringing Lee Griffiths in and making him captain because they were playing Ross County at home. That did not end brilliantly for uh, for Dundee. Uh, so 64 points, pretty happy with that. And I dropped like 20 places down the league. Fast forward to Saturday, I managed, thankfully, to see the uh, the notice that Ross County Hibs had been cancelled, or at least postponed. So I uh, did the necessary adjustments. Uh, 45 all in, and I've now rose about 40 places. So 110th in the league. Uh, mine wasn't quite so positive. I had 52 points for game week 11, so the midweek games, which wasn't too bad. And I'm sitting on a pretty unimpressive 17 points currently. Ooh. <laughs> um, well, it didn't help that I've got some Hearts players and we all know what happened there. Ross County Hebs being postponed means I guess I lost out on some points because some of those guys had played. And then I didn't realise the boys was injured. So I probably should have done something about that. <laughs> and then you also have to throw into the mix that I'm just not very good at this. So 17 points. I think I'm sitting 193rd in our league, which is oh. not good. I don't actually see quickly how many people are in that league, but I suspect... It's about 250-ish. Oh, 246, two, yeah. So it's not going well for me. Yeah, I mean, like my game week 11, 52 points, which was not bad considering I still had Ramsey, Jamie McGrath and Sean Rooney in the team who were all injured and have been for weeks, um, which just shows you how much attention I pay to this. Yesterday, oh, 30 points, which, wait to hear this, 11 of those points came from Xander Clark. <laughs> and again, I still had Rooney, Ramsey, McGrath on the pitch, so really stuffed out as well with Hibs not playing at all. So not a, a great week from my perspective. I have slipped way down the table. I'm now in 179th spot, which is quite the dramatic fall from grace. But up at the top of the table, Jack's Silly Geese, 747. Jack Curran and his two turkeys on 744, so just three points in that. And then into third spot, Beach End Boys. So Davey Cormack will like those guys. And that's Callum Reed, and he's sitting there at 741. So only, only six points separating the top three. And then a big gap, 18 points down to fourth spot. Dino Dreadful with Callum Wilson. Oh, good. Any names in there that... Jumping out to you these, this week, guys. Today, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Jamie Dean's in 26th place, McGinn and Tonic. Nice. 
good. It's good. Uh, Michael Moffat, 31st spot. Lee's under 15s. <laughs> I can only presume that that refers to a certain striker at Dundee. Um, and what did I see? There was one here. There's one here. 45th place, Jamie Kilday, Rage Against the, Le- the Levine. Nice. That is great. I like that. that. That's fantastic work. And to round things off, how topical is this? In 50th spot, Andy Innes, penalty to Rangers. <laughs> so moving on, next Saturday sees Motherwell visit Petaudry for the first time this season in the SPFL Premiership before the final international break of this calendar year. Gents, what are we expecting? What are we hoping? Well, um, in, in weeks gone by, I would look at Motherwell's form in the last five games where they've become, you know, um, they've got, it's the worst run of form in the last five SPL matches for any of the 12 teams. It's four defeats and one draw. So you'd look at that and think to themselves, well, they'll be happy to be playing Aberdeen next. They were on the receiving end of a 6-1 thrashing by Rangers today. I'm sure much like Hearts, they will come up here to contain and try to hit us on the break. You just hope we go into it with this renewed sense of confidence and we can take the game to them and yeah, show the quality that we've finally started to show that we all believed our squad contained. Yeah, pretty much that. I'm not expecting Motherwell to come here with any real intent on you know coming out and attacking us and really going for the win. I expect them to, like you say, sort of set in it. You know, and that's not really criticism as such, they're entitled to do. But they see fit is their you know their best chance to get a result. But I'm a little bit more encouraged now than I would have been um, maybe a week or so ago. Obviously, three games with three good results. But the fact that we did manage to play our way through a stuffy Hearts team gives me a better belief that we could play our way through a Motherwell team, for example, and their form is worse. So kind of theoretically, um, we've got a pretty good chance. So we're at home. I'd expect. I want three points. And actually, it's probably a little bit too early to be sort of knee-jerking and saying, right, we've cracked it, we're on great form. But you'd have to look at that and be disappointed if you if you can't get something out of that game. Yeah, I mean, Gav, you're right. They're, they're currently, as you say, they've got the worst form at the moment in the league. They sit level pegging with us at the moment in the table. We're, we're both tied on 15 points. Mirror records of each other. I mean, I think the, the performance that we had at Fair Park early in the season was probably the... I guess it's probably where the rot started for us. It was a game where I think we dominated a lot of ball, a lot of territory, but gave up two really silly goals. Um, not obviously then. Which which is incredible because it was the best performance by an away team at Fair Park in years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was, I was just going to bring that up. So I hope there'll be a measure of you know revenge being sought, I imagine, from us to go out there and, and rectify that. I, I'd like to think, given the run of form that Motherwell are on, we should have a. We should hopefully have too much for them. Um, the guy Van Veen, who was kind of getting a lot of plaudits at the start of the season, seems to have dropped off quite a bit. He's only got two goals this season. One of them against us. Tony Watts, their top scorer on seven, so that's probably the guy we need to to keep close tabs on. But I don't. I watched a bit of the Rangers game today. I thought Motherwell looked poor across the piece. I thought they looked. Actually, I thought they looked quite weak defensively. I thought they looked all over the, sh- the shop. I would have expected them today to be 
again, compact, stuffy, try and make it difficult for Rangers. I think Rangers find it far too easy to, to cut through them. Obviously, the red card for O'Donnell in the second half doesn't help matters, but... I yeah, but that doesn't come till going on 70 minutes. They were already out of the game at that yeah. point. So you're right, probably didn't help with uh, whoever it was, five and six or whatever, but they were out of sight prior to that. And was, yeah, them looking a bit soft defensively is not really something you would, or not really something I would normally associate with them, but... It's kind of encouraging that uh, you know if that if that is the way it's looking, and kind of role reversal to where we've been, where we've been saying oh, teams are looking forward to playing us, and you know maybe the Aberdeen players are suffering from a lack of confidence, etc. It's pretty much one eighty now, isn't it? You've got to assume that our team is going to be as confident as it has been, and rightfully so. And Motherwell probably thinking oh, maybe if we can get a point out of this, but I, I really just hope we can. Sort of stick to our guns, as it were. Try and work on what you know. Stephen Glass obviously believes he can implement Aberdeen, and again, if we can get the three points out of that, it's a really tidy run. And you're just disappointed that it's an international break after that. Absolutely. Um, the, the thing with that though is, if if we were to pick up three points from from that particular fixture next week, it leaves us in in decent looking shape. I think going in. I mean, we've got United away is the is the game after the international break, and then Celtic away. But after that, it's then a run of Livingston at home, St. Mirren at home, St. Johnston away, and then, well, Hibs away just before Christmas. It suddenly looks like a completely different... Those fixtures look very different if we come out of this run here with 10 points out of 12, it's fair to say. Yeah, de- definitely. And the atmosphere around the club as well, which is just as critical. So, yeah, and it's a little bit of a sporting cliche, but, um, you know, if we win this game against Motherwell... It puts us three points ahead of them. Maybe starts to create a little bit of daylight between the top six and the bottom six. Yeah, I, th- I think the top six for me looks the way I'd expect it to look. Maybe swapped Dundee United and St Johnston around, depending just on the basis of the last few years. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's a bit of a cliche. But if we maybe don't get this result and we're back in the bottom six, you know, a lot of the good work is undone very quickly. So massive game when we. Go into a little bit more detail about Motherwell's, you know, last five games. They've conceded 14 goals. Yeah, which is skewed a little bit by six today. But still, that's still eight goals in the other. It's still, you know, it's still over to, you know, a game, even if you like, even if you say it's like 3-1 when O'Donnell gets sent off. So I'd like to think that with Watkins, Hedges, Ferguson, Ramirez, um, Ramirez, Alan Russell's set-piece acumen. Dylan McGee actually able to pick out a teammate from a set-piece. It's all got the potential to look so much better, you know, sort of um, whatever it is, five o'clock next Saturday. Uh, definitely. I mean, if you look at the fixtures next week as well, Hearts played Dundee United at Tynecastle next Saturday. So one of those teams, if, if we were to beat Motherwell without wanting to put, you know, get too far ahead of ourselves, if we beat Motherwell, then we will either be three points behind one of those sides or we'll be four points behind them both. And given the starts to the season those two sides have had, given the fact we went, well, however many games it was that we lost in a row and didn't win, that'd be pretty remarkable to go into that inertia break, being within that sort of touching distance of, of either of those two sides. So a lot to play for. And and you're right, it would build a lot of momentum going in. It would actually be probably a disappointing time for the international break to roll around for us. But again, maybe we'd actually come at a good time. It would allow us just to settle down, get some bodies back. I don't think Glass spoke yesterday at all about whether we expect the likes of Ramsey or Gallagher or McKenzie to be available next week. So I'm presuming we go into next week with pretty much the same core of players that we had 
the last week. I'm, I'm intrigued to see what we do system-wise next Saturday, whether we start with a three again, um, because it has worked quite well for us, or whether we go back to the, or whether we go to the four that, that saw us out in the second half on Saturday. Decisions, decisions for the, for the manager to make. Yeah, but they're, um, they're decisions that, they're difficult decisions because of the way people have shown up rather than difficult decisions of like, who the hell am I going to play? Absolutely. I think I would say same as what I said prior to the Rangers game. If Ramsey, McKenzie, Gallagher, even if they're, you know, if it's touch and go, the guys who've come in the last couple of games have shown they can do things so they can do the job. So keep faith and then let's get as many people back fit for, uh, for the first game after the international break. So guys, Anyone want to venture some predictions for next Saturday? 3-1 Aberdeen. Uh, goals from Watkins, Ferguson and Hedges. I'm the pessimistic one, so I'll stick with a safe 1-0. Which I will also take. <laughs> I'm going 2-0. Don's keep a clean sheet. Ramirez and McCrory from another shithousing corner kick. No pressure, guys. And so that wraps up part one of this week's show. Join us after the break for our exclusive interview with David Robertson. And to play out the first half, we're delighted to bring you music from Broken Chanter, whose latest album, Catastrophe Hits, dropped on Friday. You can head over to brokenchanter.com slash shop to pick up your copy of the album and make sure you follow at Broken Chanter on Twitter for the latest updates on tour dates and so on. So here to celebrate the release of the album is a track off it. It's Dancing Skeletons by Broken Chanter. I need to change the head in my lungs. Smash my TV. Cut off my phone and let go. A friendly face to grin at the time. To feed you a line Throw you a rope Then let go
This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Aber Necessities. Aber Necessities want to ensure that underprivileged children across the Northeast experience the joy and magic of the most wonderful time of the year by providing each child with a Christmas Eve box to make the magic of the night before Christmas as special and as memorable as possible. Childhood should be a cherished time when everything is real and anything is possible because no child should go without believing in magic. If you believe this too, let's work together. Please reach out and email info at abernecessities.co.uk. Welcome back to part two of the ABZ Football Podcast, and we're delighted to bring you the latest in our line of exclusive, in-depth interviews with Don's personalities of past and present. And we are more than well aware that this one may be the most controversial one we bring you. It's a man who was a boyhood Aberdeen fan, signed by Sir Alex Ferguson before progressing through the ranks to the first team, ending up with 177 appearances and three goals, together with winner's medals in both the League Cup and Scottish Cup before making that move to Rangers in the summer of 1991 is David Robertson. David Robertson, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, good, yep. Uh, back in India now, so I'm uh, um, away from home, um, although I believe that the weather's the same as it is in, in Aberdeen at the moment. So no, it's, it's good to get back and forth. Six months out, so um, a week of pre-season gone, so we're, we're going okay. Great stuff. And listen, we're delighted to have you on the show. Grateful to be able to get an opportunity to grab you just while you're in the middle of pre-season training as well with, with Real Kashmir. So let's just get started, I guess, at the beginning. You, you, you were born in Aberdeen, October 1968. And was, was football always your first kind of sporting love? Um, no, uh, believe it or not, I wasn't really interested in playing football. Um, I, I don't think I started playing until about eight or nine years old. Um, my dad used to take me, myself and my sister to the Duffy Park every Sunday to try and kick a ball about and I had no real interest. I was more interested in going to the D Chocolate Cabin to get um, some ice cream at the end of it. My sister, she would kick a ball about a little bit. Um, and it wasn't until Aberdeen beat Celtic in the League Cup final in 1976 when David Robb scored the winner that uh, my dad, my mum and dad um, bought me all the, the kit, the, the banners and did the Union Street you know, the, the open top bus and followed him down to Pitodri. And, and after that, I was just hooked on football. And um, I wasn't the best, I must admit. Um, I was a bit late in starting. Um, I remember when I was at Inchgarth Primary School in Garth Day. And I went for trials for the, the school team and I also didn't make it. Um, but I think the second or third game, I think somebody must have pulled out or someone was sick. I got a call up um, and believe it or not, I was a sub. I came on as a sub and was quickly subbed off again. It was that bad. So um, so then after that, my, my house, parents' house in Garth Day, um, I would just be out the back garden playing non-stop, non-stop. And um, somehow I, I managed to sort of pick the game up pretty quick. So you just kind of touched on it there, obviously maybe a bit of a late developer in terms of your your support for Aberdeen, but... Can you kind of remember the first match you attended at Pataudry and who were your favourite players when you were when you were growing up? Yeah, I actually remember. I think it was either Joe Harper or Bobby Clark made a comeback injury or something. I went to a reserve game my dad took me to and there was a huge crowd 
Um, in those days, if, you know, if a big star came back. Um, but my my hero really was, uh, I caught the tail end of Joe Harper, but I just, you know, after that 1976 um, win against Celtic, I, my dad and myself used to go every week. Um, I just I just love Joe Harper. Um, even now, if I see him playing golf or something, you still get that little uh, that sort of feeling you can't believe it. I had posters of him on the wall and... Um, he, he was he was my real favourite. I think he was a lot of Aberdeen fans' favourite, to be honest, at the same time. And um, obviously, Willie Miller, um, again, he just made the game look so easy. And I was fortunate enough to to play alongside him. Um, but I think, you know, just watching Aberdeen, particularly, you know, the, the Cup Winners' Cup, but even just before that, um, you know, around about the Alec Ferguson, when he first started um you know, Aberdeen, and it was just an exciting time, big crowds with over 20,000 at virtually every game, and um, it was just a, it was just a great, particularly European nights, was just fantastic, just going to Pataudry, and the atmosphere was fantastic. Can you remember your first European night at Pataudry, as a, as a fan? I don't actually know, um, I remember the Liverpool game, um, my, my dad, my poor dad, um, he passed away about six months ago, but he was, um, he was in the queue, um, to get the tickets there was no voucher system in those days so um, unfortunately my dad queued for hours and hours and we never got a ticket um, and, and it was the games weren't even on live at that point it was just the highlights at night so um, that's the first one I really remember even though I wasn't at the game um, but I remember you know being up when I was an S form at Aberdeen you know being ball boys you know against Watershy Bayern Munich and the excitement of those nights was just you know just incredible even okay I was a ball boy that night but just to be a part of it was special Absolutely. I mean, and you kind of touched on it there, obviously, you, you, I think you started your youth football journey with, with D-side boys, um, who I think are now Banks of D, right, I'm thinking. That's correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, can you kind of remember where you figured out or something twigged that made you think, actually, I might have a right go, actually, at being a professional here? Um, well, I think early on, um, I don't know if they still do it, but there was Champion Street. Yeah. Um, years and years ago um, and I was at Garthy Goal I was played in the, the primary school Edzer Thompson who probably everybody in Aberdeen knows about him um, he took the school team he also took the, the Garthy Goal team and it wasn't until after my first season there that um, D-Side Boys Club wanted to sign me Aberdeen Lads Club at that time but a lot of middle field a lot of the teams wanted to so obviously at that point I began to think to myself you know I'm not I must be sort of half decent at that point um, and then it, I got into the, the primary school select um, and, and what happens is the primary school sorry the, the primary school select in those days you would um, once you go into high school when I went to Harlow Academy all those players on a Monday night would train um, you know during the first year at, at uh, secondary school and you know in the Ash Park at Petaudry and you play against Highland League teams you, know, you play against Keith and all the experienced players and you're only 13 or 14 and um, you know, they'd, they'd kick lumps out of you the whole game and you'd be sliding tackles on the ash and um, you quickly grow up. Um, and then it wasn't until Alec Ferguson, my dad overheard Alec Ferguson, he used to come to all the training sessions and we must have been playing one game and, and Lenny Taylor says to him, you know, that's a kid Robertson and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and quickly, within a couple of weeks, um, and Lenny, as Lenny Taylor must have called my, my dad and... Um, asked if we'd go and sign s Forms for Aberdeen. And, you know, it's, I think it was a big honour for me, but I think for my dad being an Aberdeen supporter, it was, a, you know, a, a really sort of proud dad moment. Um, so, you know, obviously we went down and um, Alec Ferguson signed me as a, an s Form in his office. And um, as I say, it was just fantastic 
Um, but even then, you know, a lot of people don't know, but I didn't have a, a lot of confidence in myself as a player. Um, I think that maybe was, you know, when I first started at primary school when I couldn't get in the team and I, you know, I wasn't very good. So I always had this thing about myself that I wasn't the greatest player and, you know, maybe I was just fortunate to be in certain positions. And um, But, you know, for three years, I I think I was an S1 for about three years and, you know, Teddy Scott was in charge of the reserve team. He would, you know, often put me in the reserves and I'd have to miss a boys club game and, you know, at 14, 15, I'm playing the reserves. I remember one time we played against Rangers um, at Pretodre and I was I was playing as a as a striker in those days and I was up against an ageing Derek Johnston and I think I was only 14 years old. So um, it was just great. I think the way that things were done then, you know, <clears throat> you play with older players and older men and you certainly grow up. Um, and unfortunately enough, um, once you get to that 16-year-old, you're about to leave school, I just felt that... Um, you know, even though a lot of people said, "Oh, you'll get kept on, you'll get full time," and I remember we all had to sit in the in the in the hallway at Petodre, and Alec Ferguson would call you in one by one. And um, some players came out crying because they they weren't kept on. Um, I was fortunate enough that I was I was given a I think it was a two year contract with a two year option, and um, it'd be quite funny. My dad and the option part was quite big in those days. The option was um, the club's option. It wasn't yourself. So I think I was on £65 a week or £85 a week. And So if I did well after two two years, they could just keep you on that same money. Um, so I went home that night when I got the, the told I was getting a contract. I went home and I said to my dad, um, I've been asked two year or two-year option. And he said to me, he says, OK, son. He says, eh, but you go back in there and tell Alec Ferguson that um, you you want a two-year contract or a four-year contract, no options. So I remember taking the two buses um, from Garth Day, dreading going in to knock on that door, knocked on the door, and I says, eh, he says, well, and I says, look, um, my dad said to just a two-year or four-year contract. He says, did he? And I goes, yeah. He says, well, just sign this. So I just signed it, and it was a two-year with two-year option. You just terrified the guy, so... Um, and I was terrified to tell my dad, um, but eventually what happens is that the league, everything was done by mail at the, in those days. So the letter came through the, the door to say that I'd signed a two-year or two-year option. So um, also my dad wasn't too pleased, but um, no, it was just it was just a great honour to to play for your boyhood team. Absolutely, I can imagine. I mean, it's the it's, it's the dream, isn't it, for anyone uh, who supports a, a football club yeah. when, they're, when they grow up. And talking about the hairdryer treatment officer Alex Ferguson. Um, you were part of the youth side that won the Youth Cup in, in 1985. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was alongside the likes of Paul Wright and Joe Miller and guys like that. And I think I'm right in saying I read this story not that long ago. This was kind of the first exposure, I think, for a lot of you as to the famous Sir Alec hairdryer treatment at halftime of that final against Celtic. Yeah. Aberdeen had just won the... The first team had won the league. I think they were the Stuart McKimmy scored a winner at Tynecastle. By by chance, we got to the, this, this BP Youth Cup final, it was called in those days, against Celtic. And um, it was at Petaudry. So because Aberdeen won the, the league, you know, in Edinburgh, they wanted to celebrate with the fans. So they, they let the fans in. They did a presentation um, before the game. And obviously a lot of supporters stayed after to watch us. Um, and Willie Garner was the assistant manager at the time. And he took the youth team. And, you know, he said before the game, he said, the boss is here. Um, all the first team players, Willie Miller, Peter Weir, you name it, all the, all the big guns were there. And um, so it's a big night for you, you know. Don't let yourselves down, and 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 what have you. So, I think we came in two or three nothing down at half time, and Willie Garner came in, and 
obviously he was as embarrassed as we were and he, he just sort of, you know, calmed down and, you know, don't concede any more goals, damage limitation, all that kind of things. And and then about five seconds later, the door burst open, Alec Ferguson came in and, and he went through every player. And, and bear in mind, I think I was 15 at the time and, you know, with players that were 14, 15, 16, but I don't know many players that were actually close to 18. Um, and he never missed it. Oh, there was foam coming out of his mouth and he just, oh, he, he just butchered everyone, you know, and, and it was like, it felt like it lasted for about half an hour, but it was about 30, about 30 seconds and he was in and he was out and we all just stood there like gobsmacked and, you know, what's what's going on and, and we were out and we won 5-3 after extra time. So uh, it certainly worked and, and I think I took that into my career, um, you know, that I, I just think that Fergie, I was fortunate enough to have just that game that he was such a perfectionist, you know, and, and, and it was a case of even if you're losing heavily, you can still win the game. And you see Manchester United, they were scoring goals in the last, yeah. you know, Bayern Munich and they were goal down in, in injury time and they actually win it. Don't even just get a draw, they win it. Um, but that was just what he was like and he was just sort of detail-orientated. And, you know, I, I always remember, you know, most managers, if you win one nothing or 2 nothing or 3 nothing, everybody's happy. But he was such a perfectionist that I remember one game we played at Clyde Bank and we won five nothing and I made a mistake. It didn't go to obviously didn't go to any ball and but he came in and he crucified for it for me, you know. So even if you win, you know, sometimes you can paint over the cracks a little bit. But he was just, you know, so much detail and he helped me a lot. Um, you know, he'd always have a go at you if you made a mistake, um, any kind of mistake or trying to improve your game. But to be fair to him on a Monday, he would always take you in the office and explain to you why you know and, and I think the reason he did that was I think Saturday he would have a go at you if you deserved it obviously and you'd have Saturday night and Sunday to dread going into Petodri on, on Monday so um, and then, but to be fair he'd always explain exactly um, you know where you went and what you have to do Well it's kind of summed up I guess isn't it by his you know the new documentary it's titled Never Give In isn't it it's kind of just yeah. his entire mantra isn't it so you're kind of kept on, you touched on it earlier on, you're kept on, you sign up to a full-time contract, a two-and-two two eventually. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you make exactly. your first appearance for the first team comes um, just not long after that Youth Cup final, actually, just after the summer, a, a friendly match at Meadow Bank. You come off the bench to join a team that had the likes of Jim Layton, uh, Alec McLeish, Willie Miller, John Hewitt, Frank McDougall, Jim Bett playing at that point. What was it like? You're still a young lad at that point, you know. What, what was it like there making your way in the game to be in and around that dressing room at such a young age? And I was just gonna say, who were the senior players that maybe had an impact on you and gave you some advice and guidance that maybe helped you through the rest of your career? Yeah, Alan McLeish and Peter Weir were probably the best. Um, Alan, um, Alan McLeish in particular, you know, obviously him and Willie. Willie was a grumpy one that would shout at you and give you abuse. Um, and you know, at, at a young age, you can't understand why, but. You know, later in your career, you understand why he did it. Um, but Big Alec was just, you know, even though he was such a big name, international star and, and what have you, he would always have time for you. He'd always sit next to you. But he had this knack of knowing if you're you're going through a bad period of form and he would sit next to you. He would, you know, you know, he, he, he wasn't aloof to anyone. Um, he had time for everyone. Even now, I remember a time when um, I was actually... I maybe shouldn't say it, but I was actually doing a halftime draw at Ibrox and Alec was the manager at the Rangers. And he was actually, um, I was going out at halftime, he was coming in and they were getting beat in this, in this Champions League game or a qualifier. 
And his student spoke to me for five minutes before he went and did his halftime team talk, asking how my family was. And, and that's just the type of guy he is and he, and he was. Um, but that game in particular, Alec Ferguson, he was, he's very clever. Um, you know, it's time he does things. It's not till later on in life that you understand why he actually did it. You know, he, took, he had a habit of, particularly in the preseason games, he would take a lot of the young guys with him just to carry the hampers, the boots. And I think there was myself and, and Robert McDrobb and a few other ones um, that were brought down to Meadowbank. And, you know, you go and have a pre-match meal with the team, you go and put the boots out, you do everything. And then maybe, what, an hour before the game, he reads out the team. And in those days, it was only two subs. And then um, I think I was named I was named as a sub. And it was like, oh, my, I, I couldn't believe it. But I think if he told you the night before, you would never have slept and you have no energy left. And uh, that's just... I think that's obviously it's great management to do it, and obviously you go in there and and you play really well. I, I don't know how I played, but it was just a, a surreal atmosphere. You know, you're playing with Jim Lee, and you know you, I used to go sit in the terrace and watch them. You watch them beat Real Madrid, and here you are, you're, you're playing the same team as these guys. Fast forward on um, to the eighty six eighty seven season, and that's when your full Aberdeen debut comes in a home league match against Hamilton Ackies. You come off the bench to replace Brian Mitchell in a two 0 victory for the Dons. Can you remember much about, about that game there? And that must have been a really proud day for not just yourself, but also your family that you mentioned before. Your dad obviously is a, a huge Aberdeen fan. It's actually funny how it happened. Um, the ritual that my dad and myself had was we'd go to the Bonacore Golf Club um, across the road from Pataudry, um, and then I would go away and I'd have my club suit on. I'd go in and, and watch. Um, obviously, as, a, as an apprentice, you go in there and you watch it, the team play and, and, and what have you. And there was no mobile phones in those days, so it was the same thing. I, uh, I was um, I was in the squad, but again, there was only two subs, and, and when you're in the squad, you know, it's about twenty of you, so you don't really think there's any chance to going to to go on. Um, but my dad obviously was a member at the Bonacore Golf Club, and what used to happen was I would um, go with him, and but I wasn't allowed in the main bar because I was only sixteen or seventeen, and um, so I'd have to sit in the locker room with all the little kids, and my dad would come around with a little bottle of coke and a bag of crisps, and wait until he's finished playing dominoes or cards or whatever he was playing. Um, so that, this, that was the same thing that happened that day. And I went away across the road to Pitodri, um, sat down, two o'clock, subs read out. I was a sub. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't tell my dad because there's no mobile phones. So obviously he arrived there and he had no idea. He didn't even know until I actually stepped on the pitch. He goes, 20 minutes to go. And he says, well, that's my son. That's my son. So after the game... Um, obviously after the games I would normally go to the Bonacle Golf Club and go home with my dad so I walk in go in the back door and because um, I'm not allowed in the main because I'm 17 and on a Wednesday night I was the same age as I was three days ago but I got in the main bar and suddenly I became a, a little bit of a hero and obviously it was a, a real great moment for my dad you know when I walked through that door because um, you know it's, it's it's every as you said before it's every kid's dream to play for your your local team and um, I think my dad was more proud than I was. Um, just a, it was a, a fantastic day. And again, Alec Ferguson didn't tell me the, the day before or anything. Even when I was a sub, I thought there's no way that he's going to stick me on. Um, and he did. And I remember the, um, I think I let in a cross and Jim Layton came for a uh, came for a cross and I think he got his tooth knocked out and burst his lip. And there was no sub goalies in those days. So I'd only been on the pitch of it two minutes. <laughs> Everybody's looking a bit going in goals and I'm hiding behind people because I'm thinking they've got time to put me in goals. And lucky enough, uh, Brian Irvin put his hand up and volunteered to go in. So 
Um, maybe if I'd gone in goals, my career might not have been as successful <laughs> as it as it turned out to be. And uh, you also do well enough. You you, you get a, a first start the following midweek, a, a four 0 victory over uh, Alloa in the League Cup, and that's then followed up with your first experience of European football, a start for yourself in the first leg of the first round of the Cup Winners' Cup against Sion, a 2-1 victory for Aberdeen, which was unfortunately overturned with a 3-0 defeat in Switzerland a couple of weeks later. What were your kind of first memories about playing those games in Europe? Um, well, the first game against Sion, um, I, I didn't have a... Obviously, you just don't think you've got a, a chance. To, you get little bits and pieces. I played against Alloa in the League Cup, no disrespect to Alloa, but it wasn't a huge game. Um, and also got 20 minutes against Hamilton. But, you know, you play against Sion. I remember on the Tuesday... Walking from the training ground, training to the bus at seat, the little mini bus at Seaton Park, and Archie Knox says to me, he says, uh, "Davy, he says, uh, have you watched? Did you watch the World Cup?" And I goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He says, "Did you see um, the Moroccan Aziz Boudabala?" And I had no clue. I says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And he says, "Well, you're you're playing against him tomorrow night." You know, and there was no videos. We didn't have video, and I'm, I'm I didn't even know what he looked like, um, and there's no there's no names on their jerseys or anything those days, so. Uh, I just I said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And obviously, I started the game. And, and to this day, I still don't know who Aziz Budabala was. <laughs> I don't even know what play, if he was on my side or Stuart McKinney's side. I don't know. But um, but that was a fantastic experience, you know, the, the crowd. You know, because in those days, Aberdeen, you know, they were still a successful club. Um, you know, they're still challenging for things, even though it wasn't quite as a successful period as it was previously. But... You know, that European nights were great. And I remember Paul Wright scored a fantastic goal from, I think it was about 20, 30 yards from a free kick. And, uh, you know, we'd, just it was it was great. And at 2-1, you win. And obviously, as you said, that was a sub in the next game. And I think we obviously lost, uh, which was a, a huge disappointment. By this point, though, you're really starting to kind of cement yourself in the first team squad and even in the, in the, in the starting lineup. A few weeks later, though, after this, you start in a 2-0 victory at Dens Park, which is actually Sir Alex Ferguson's last match in charge of Aberdeen. Can you remember what was the mood like in the dressing room when it was confirmed he was moving to Manchester United? And I guess just to reflect a bit on what was your own relationship like with Sir Alex when, when he was in charge at Pathodry? I just, I just found with Alex Ferguson, I've said about his detail and what have you, his son Mark um, played the same D-side boys club team as, as I did. And, you know, often he would come to the game um, you go stand at Inverdee you know here's his famous manager but you wouldn't see that nowadays he's standing at Inverdee watching his son play and um, and I, I used to hate when he used to came to play because I because I was an S from I thought I have to be about 10 times better than anyone else and I'd spend half my time looking at the touchline to see if he was there and then I'd often ask Mark I says your dad coming tonight and he goes no he's not coming oh I'd have, I'd have a great game and then other times your dad coming he goes oh no and then you see the silver Mercedes coming out of the car park and you know, you're all nervous and twitchy and you know, a bit of a nightmare. Um, but no, he was he was great. I remember one time, um, which is quite a, a bizarre thing, and again, I keep going on about his detail, was that um, the, the number 11 bus stop um, behind Pataudry, um we used to train on a Monday night as a, a 13, 14-year-old. Um, and I remember standing at the bus about 9 o'clock at night waiting for the bus to get home and he's, he pulls up in his silver Mercedes and he says, Davey, get in, give me a lift home. He didn't ask me where I lived, but he took me to my house in Garthy because I was terrified. He was talking to me and it was like, I won what, yes, no, yes, no, I was terrified of him. And he didn't even ask me where I lived. Um, so it just shows you, he just knew everything. Um, and then obviously, we'd, there was speculation at the Dundee game 
Um, but it wasn't until I think it was the, the Monday or Tuesday. I think it must have been like the Monday or Tuesday. Um, I remember again, my dad, I was beginning to drive there. So I used to use my dad's company car and I would give him a lift to the Bonacore Golf Club about seven o'clock and pick him up about 10 o'clock. And, and I remember, you know, picking my dad up and I was listening to the radio and it said that Alec Ferguson is going to join Manchester United. And I didn't think of uncertainty or what happens when a new guy comes in. I just, it was like a, a bombshell more than anything. And I remember going into pathology the next day and uh, it was it was almost like a funeral. It was just like so quiet. Because I mean, let's face it, you know, the man was there for, was it seven, eight years he was there? Um, I think it was seven years. And, yeah. you know, obviously it's similar to now when Derek McInnes, when somebody's been there for so long and, and it changes, um, obviously Derek McInnes has left and, you know, everybody's, everybody at the club is set in their ways. And, you know, in those days, Alec Ferguson ran the whole club. Um, so it was just that, a weird atmosphere. And because I was only, what, 18 or 19, um, I was very quiet. I didn't talk to many of the players. I was, I was still in awe of them all. And I, I just didn't know what what the future held mm-hmm. um, but it was quite funny because I think about Archie I think Archie was still at Pataudry maybe but it was roll on we were still playing in the Youth Cup um, I, was, I was in the first team at the time and we played Celtic at, at Parkhead one midweek I couldn't I, I couldn't um, I think we lost anyway we come back up to the bus I put the um, we put all the stuff back in the but this time I've got a car so I'm driving home um, about what one o'clock in the morning, and you know I'm going along um, Ochenil Road up to where my mum and dad stay, and you know, and, and here's this car behind me, um, you know, and it's getting closer and closer, and I end up going about eighty mile an hour on a thirty mile um, so speed limit, and I'm thinking, who's this guy? Who's this guy? And then I thought, oh my god, it's the police! So they started flashing lights. So I pulled over, and I thought, oh no. Anyway, I get out of the car, and it was Alec Ferguson, and. Um, <laughs> In the middle of Ocken- and side of Ockenell Road, um, and he asked me if I what if I would go to Manchester United. Um, and typical me, I said, "Yeah, you're yeah, yeah, you're terrified of the guy." And um, I remember going home. I woke my mum and dad up and told them that. And my dad's went, "Nah, no chance, no chance." Uh, anyway, um, that's what happened. And I think he tried to get me, but because he'd signed me on this two year with a two year option, um, there wasn't much chance of it happening. So he said. He said, done it, shot himself in the foot, I suppose. <laughs> um, and I remember um, it was when I think Archie, it was Archie took the last game, or it was a friendly game, I'm not sure, and it was the first game that Ian Porterfield watched. For some reason, I wasn't even the squad that night. I was just left out. Teddy Scott told me, this was no, maybe about a year later, he told me, he said that that night after the game, Ian Porterfield said, oh, the team did really well. He says, I'm just going to play the same team. And Teddy says, no, 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 you have to play Davy. He's been doing really well. So it turns out, you know, Teddy Scott later told me that what they tried to do was get me out of the team so that they could bring me to Manchester United. Obviously, Porterfield might forget about me. and, and But obviously, Teddy Scott saved the day for me and um, was back in the team. And you just touched on it there. So surprisingly, I think to everybody, it's, it's Ian Porterfield who's the board's choice to replace Sir Alex. And... His first match in charge of Aberdeen is a, a boisterous, let's say, 1-0 victory over Rangers. And you played the full 90 for that one. Uh, a fine header from David Dodds settling that one. Can you remember much about that game? But I guess more importantly, what was the squad's reaction to Porterfield being the one that was given the nod to follow in Fergie's footsteps? I think obviously he had a bit of a, you know, he's a big name scoring a game and a, a goal in the FA Cup final. And, but I think there was a little bit of shock and they couldn't believe it. 
Um, I mean, to be fair, it was a it was a different appointment. It wasn't just your typical, you know, the merry-go-round that managers go. Um, but I think um, you know we we quickly realised that you know he, he was a lovely guy, but he, I just don't think he understood Aberdeen as a club and, and Scottish football. Um, you know, we'd, we'd maybe draw with St Mirren at home or Hamilton at home, and he thinks, oh, it's a great result. But you know, in those days, Aberdeen basically he, you you go to Glasgow and expect to beat Rangers and, and Celtic, uh, you know, every time. Um, but that's our uh, mentality changed a little bit. Um, and he was very, you know, loose with training. And, and but don't get me wrong, lovely guy. Um, I remember when I, I played. Well, I was injured for a cup final, and he actually gave me his medal. So I, I can't say enough about the guy. But I just felt that um, no. But to be honest, I mean, you look at Manchester United. Um, the managers they've had Louis Van Gaal, they've had Mourinho, they've had the best managers in the world, and it's very, very difficult to follow um, Alec Ferguson. And I don't think it mattered who came in; um, it was you're always going to be a, it's got always going to be judgmental. Yeah, it's almost one of those you, you kind of don't want to be the first day afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, but, but at the same time, he had a he had a quite a a good record. You know, like you say, his first game, but um, you know, his time going on went on. You know, it, I think it was time for a change. Yeah, too many draws, I think, is the way to always look at the Porterfield regime, I think. Um, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, that, that season kind of fizzles out a little bit. Aberdeen end up finishing fourth in the table and are knocked out of the League Cup um, at the quarterfinals by Celtic on penalties. And then it's Celtic again who eliminate Aberdeen in the Scottish Cup uh, at the third round stage in a second replay. Oh, that's right, yeah. That was, that was when they used to have about 100 replays. Aye, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the time you're just hoping that somebody wins so you don't have to play again <laughs> yeah exactly um, it was always at Dens Park in Tanadice those games yeah a neutral Dens Park to play Dundee United exactly you know? yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, and that obviously leads you to the first trophyless season I've been have had since the 1980-81 season but for you it's a real breakthrough season you made a total of 42 appearances that year 38 of them were starts were you kind of now of the belief at that point that you were really a, a first team regular that's, that's where you were um, I, I, I never really, you know, as I say, throughout my career, I never felt that way. Even though I played every game, I always heard a bit of nervousness because the team was never confirmed until, you know, two o'clock on a Saturday. And I always had that doubt in the back of my mind that I might not be playing, you know. And I think that's, I just had this mentality that I knew that there's an old saying, obviously, play every game as if it's your last. But that really was my, throughout my career, that was how I felt because I always felt that there were better players than I was. Um, and I was almost a little bit, I felt fortunate and lucky, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, I, I never took anything for granted, that's for sure. And into the following seasons, so it's Porterfield's only season in charge for the full campaign. Uh, Aberdeen got off to a good start, actually, unbeaten until the 7th of October, which included some good victories against Rangers in the league, uh, a 1-0 victory over Celtic in the League Cup quarterfinals. And you're a mainstay of the side at this part which includes a 2-0 victory over Dundee at neutral Tanadice, obviously, as the Dons make it through to the final of the League Cup. Um, now, injury, unfortunately, forces you off in the second leg against Bohemians in the UEFA Cup. And this ultimately means that you end up missing out on a first trip to Hamden with the Dons, um, who are eventually edged out 5-3 on penalties after an incredible 3-3 draw with Rangers in the first of that trilogy of League Cup finals. How frustrating was that for you to miss out on that final, given you were... You know, you were in the team. You were in the team for the semi-final. It would have been your first final. You'd have played that game. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I felt when I actually injured it against Dund at Dundee at Dens Park. Um, I believe when I kicked the ground, 
and uh, tried to clear the ball. I think I kicked the ground, broke my foot. Um, but I got an X-ray before Bohemians game, and they actually said that everything's fine. Um, and then eventually I got a. I had to come off in that game. My foot was too sore, and I got a bone scan. Um, it turns out that it was a fracture, so that was me out for you know a couple of months or whatever, which meant I missed the the game. But again, Ian Porterfield, you know, took me on, it took me in, and he said, "Look, you're still part of the squad," and, and I travelled with the team. I think I actually sat on the bench to be honest. I didn't, in fact, I did sit on the bench in those days. There was no restrictions with the the benches and stuff, and and I never, I'll, I'll never forget. You know, you're there watching the game, and I think it was about seventy thousand at, at the old Hamden at that time. And I just couldn't believe the atmosphere, the speed of the game. Um, I actually thought to myself at the time that I'm not even close, close in, in this in this team in this game. Um, and you know, I think afterwards it was the first time I really appreciated, you know, like how fortunate I was to be in that kind of environment. And I remember the disappointment, the losing the penalty kicks, and you know, obviously if I'd be playing, I'd be part of the, the disappointment, but. Just watching the disappointment, like Willie Miller, and who's, who's won everything throughout his career, you know, I think it really just hit home how important it was, and you know what a big club, you know, Aberdeen were, um, you know, not so much were, but you know, competing, you know, going to Glasgow because that game could have gone anyway. Obviously, went to penalty kicks, and I just found, um, you know, and then when we came back, you know, Teddy Scott, they used to give you jerseys, and he gave me two. Um, jerseys, number three jerseys um, and Ian Porterfield when we got back gave me his medal um, which just obviously still got today which was a special touch, you know he said you've played every game by the final so you deserve this so it was, it was a nice touch, sad times but a, a nice touch And that injury obviously rules you out for a number of months you end up coming back into the starting lineup um, in an away tie at hearts as I recall and then Injury hits again, and you're kind of out until the semi-final of the Scottish Cup against uh, Dundee Raid at, at Neutral Dens Park. And the original fixture is a nil-nil draw. The sides then draw one-one four days later for a second replay, and that Dens United run out one-nil victors, and that kind of pretty much knocks the season on the head at that point. Um, it's a sore end to the season. Aberdeen again finished fourth, nothing to show for it in the trophy cabinet. And a couple of days after the end of the season, Ian Porterfield um, resigns as, as Aberdeen manager. And it's at this time that the board take a look a bit more locally and it's Alex Smith and Jockey Scott who are appointed as co-managers with, with Drew Jarvie returning to Aberdeen in the role of assistant. What were your first impressions of Alex and Jockey Scott and how did you find actually the dynamic of the co-managers idea? Because it's so unusual. You know, I think everybody knew that Alex Smith was a manager and Archie, and sorry, um, Jockey was the assistant even though the, the title was co-manager. I think we always knew that you know, maybe slightly um, Alec was the, the boss, but um, I was glad when Alec Smith, because I had played for him in the under-18 Scottish team okay. uh, quite a lot. He was a manager um, and obviously came from St Mirren, so a lot of the home Scottish under-18 games were at uh, the old Anfield at, at uh, Stirling Albion. So um, I was delighted when he became, you know, the, the manager there at Aberdeen because it could have been anyone, but I think because he knew me, I felt a little bit more at ease. Um, you know, I remember... I think that first summer he took me away with the youth team as well and, and I went to Switzerland. But it, it was just great um, because he loved the young players, you know, and obviously, obviously he sort of made, he and Jess gave him a break in that cup final, which, you know, there's not many managers would be brave enough to do that, yet Ian Jess was probably the, the sort of secret weapon that basically won us the cup that day. I, I firmly believe that. Um, and obviously Jockey was... a 
Jockey was part of the under-16 Scottish team. And I knew how tough Jockey was. And um, so it was like a, a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. Um, you know, Jockey was the, the grumpy one and he'd shout at you. Um, whereas, you know, like Jockey had obviously played with Willie Miller and Alec McLeish. So he could handle those guys, and which was good. Alec Smith was, you know, more to the youth, the youth kind of player. So it was a great balance. Um, and... You know, it worked really well. And obviously, Drew Jarvie, because of who he was, he was obviously part of that 1976 team, same as Jockey. And I was, you know, just delighted to to, to be able to work with those guys. And, you know, the stories they would tell us about their times. And um, just, you know, it was, it was actually a, a great time. You know, Alec Ferguson was great. But um, I think at Aberdeen, it was fantastic with those those guys. It was like a real freshness. And moving into that campaign, the, the new management team continue with you as an integral part of the first team as Aberdeen make it back to Hamden in the League Cup uh, via a 2-0 semi-final victory over Dungeon United. It's Rangers, once again, who are waiting um, at Hamden. Can you talk us through this one, just your own personal build-up to that final for yourself? It's your first major final of your career and you would have known, I guess, in the run-up, you're, you've, you've got a great shout at starting it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was obviously the first one and and I honestly feel it's probably one of the worst games I ever played for Aberdeen. Um, and I think it was, I just kept thinking about it. I kept thinking about the the season before. I just felt that, um, you know, I, I just thought about the game playing against like of Davy Coopers or whoever we're playing against. And I was actually drained thinking about it. So when I, the game came, I'd actually no energy. I'd sapped all the energy just thinking about it. Obviously, I was still quite young at the time. Um, and I remember, obviously, uh, I took a, a shot throw in back to Theo Snelders and I think he came out and took down, I think it was Kevin Drinkle maybe. And um, and to be honest, my game, that, my, my, the performance went from bad to worse, really. Um, and then at the end, I think there was a substitution. And for, for some reason at Aberdeen, I don't know why, but I was all, I always had to pick up Richard Goff or Terry Butcher, you know, and I wasn't the biggest guy. Um, but for, I don't know what it was, but I, so it came to the end and I said to, and Brian Irvin came on as a sub and I thought like Brian you take he's either Terry Butcher or Goffey and anyway he went and picked him up and they out jumped Brian I think the ball came out as he Ian Ferguson or Ali McCoy scored the winner and, um, and I think you know it was disappointing to lose the game but more so the way that I played um, you know and, and I'll be honest after that game I just I actually thought to myself I'm not good enough to play in these games or at this level and because uh, I, I took it pretty hard. You know, I blame myself a lot for what happened. And uh, But it was just, it was a horrible feeling, you know, because I saw the disappointment before and the disappointment, again, particularly the way that I played. And it took me a, a good few games to go over that, to be honest. Yeah, and it's an interesting insight into that kind of, um, having that honesty and that transparency, I guess, around how you felt your own your own performance went that day. Um as, as you kind of touched on, it's, it's heartache again for Aberdeen. Uh, Rangers ed, end up edging it at 3-2. The season kind of continues apace. So obviously this was, you know, back in the day, when, originally when the League Cup would, would rock up, finish up by October, November time. And um, Aberdeen end up second in the table with six points adrift, but it's Dungeon United who knock Aberdeen out of the Scottish Cup once again, following a second replay for the second season. Yeah, yeah. Trot. But all in all, it's an improved season um, for the Dons under Alex Smith and Jockey Scott. Can you kind of remember, was there a, what was the mood like, I guess, in the camp going into the following season? That's the 89-90 campaign. Was there a real determination that, and a belief that we could go one step further this time and put some silverware back in the cabinet? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously there was some, you know, signings made and, you know, like obviously 
think Charlie Nicholas came in around about that time and Hans Hill House and um, you know it was just it was like like some of the players that we brought in were quite unbelievable that Aberdeen could sign those players um, and, I, and I, you know and it, and it gave us belief because you know you, you've got you know a Charlie Nicholas who's you know not many players in those days would leave Arsenal to come to Aberdeen um, and it was just I think that gave the team a bit of belief um, and just the way that Alex Smith and Jockey Scott worked you know we'd always go to Holland for pre-season and it was good fun we'd play a lot of games um, but it was just a, a real happy place um, you know like every, every player there was no big time Charlie players we just sort of got on with it we played you know again I was fortunate enough that I, that I was in the team and um, there was a belief you know I think I think every year that I was I was at Aberdeen you always felt that you could challenge for the league or you could go and win a cup. Um, and, and we still had the belief that you can go to, you know, Parkhead and Ibrox and win. And Aberdeen come out flying that season again. It's one defeat in the opening 11 fixtures. And then the Dons swat aside Albion Rovers, Airdrie and Sitman in the League Cup. And um, I guess that second out tie at Fir Park against Albion Rovers will live long in the memory for yourself. <clears throat> I think, I don't know how, how many years it was to score my first goal and, um, it's actually quite funny because the first professional goal that I scored was against Albion Rovers and my son Mason scored for um, I think it was just Dennis Muir his first goal was against Albion Rovers believe it or not so um, not a bad family statistic um, but no I think the memorable part of that was I scored and I didn't have a clue what to do I didn't know how to <laughs> celebrate uh, and lucky enough Robert, I remember Robert Connor came up to me and he was laughing that I scored because um, it was a bit of a joke myself and Stuart McKimmy would never ever score um, but finally, I, I, and I actually scored, I think I scored, you know, against O'Fairman only a few weeks, not, not that long after. So um, they came pretty quick. And it's funny, you just actually asked there about how long did it take. Um, if you want a, a bit of serendipity about yes. that, um, 16th of August, 1989, is that goal against Albion Rovers. It's exactly three years to the day that you made your first team debut against Hamilton. Yeah, I knew it was a long time, yeah. 16th <laughs> of August, 1986. So obviously 16th of August is a date that... Uh, but that's a good one in the Robertson household. <laughs> yeah. And a few weeks later, it's another League Cup semi-final, and this time it's Celtic standing in the way of Aberdeen making it to the final for a third straight season. Ian Cameron does the job of winning goal in the 76th minute, and Rangers had hammered Dunfermline 5-0 the night before at Hamden to set up a repeat of the last two seasons' finals. Was there a kind of thought in the squad of, oh, shit, here we go again, or was there a real, like, nah, this time we're going to get one over them? No, it was... It was... Um, I mean, I think it was almost almost a, a different team. You know, there was a lot of new players came in, um, but no, there was a, a belief that we would go and win. Um, but the, the one thing I remember was um, we would stay at the, the old moat house at the airport, and in the morning of the game, we'd go to Abbott's Inch and just do a little warm up um, under the I think it was under the, the M8 bridge or something. To, it was pretty low key, and then we had the, the meeting at the hotel and. Alex Smith hit the bombshell that Ian Jess was starting, and I think it was a shock to him as well. And but it was funny, no one, no one, none of the experienced boys goes, "Oh no, no!" It was just like, "Great, fine." And, and honestly, I, I do, I, I believe, and I've said this a lot that Ian Jess, you know, the decision by Alex Smith that Ian Jess' performance won the cup for Aberdeen that day because Rangers had no idea; they weren't expecting him, and they had no idea how to to cope with him. And as I said before, there's not many managers would take a gamble in such a big game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ian talked about it with us as well before, it, it, very much in the similar mode to, to how Alex Ferguson treated his young players. You know, he knew nothing about it until 
day of the game. So it doesn't let him get that opportunity almost to, to get too nervous and whatever. And just, I guess, talking about Ian, I mean, what were your initial recollections of Ian as a player when he first started coming into the squad? Yeah, no, I, I just, he just had something special. You know, he, he, he was, he was so quick, um, but he had so much technique, so much ability. And he, he was quite a quiet boy as well. And he didn't, you know, some of you get these younger boys coming in, but obviously he comes from Port Soy, so a bit like myself, you're you're quite reserved and you're nervous and what have you. But I think for me as, as a player, as a defender, it's it's a bit easier. But I think as a player like, you know, in Jess, a forward, and, you know, somebody could do a little bit different, to do it against the top-level players that he did, you know, and it wasn't just a game here and there, it was every week. Um, you know, and, and I remember one game he scored, it was at four against Dunfermline. Um, and a bit, the finishes and the pace and everything it was just incredible and he never changed as a person throughout his time at it, the time I was at Aberdeen with him um, but as I say just a fantastic talent and um, I, I do feel that um, maybe he didn't pick the right moves to go on and I think he could have played higher than in, the, in England in the clubs that he did go to Yeah it's funny actually we were speaking to um, we were talking to T.O. Snelders about Ian a couple of days ago. Um, and and Tio's view was very much he should have gone to the continent. He probably shouldn't have even gone to England. He yeah. should have looked for a move abroad. He did been really well suited to the Dutch game. Yeah. Um, I know he had opportunities to play in Italy, for example, with Sampdoria, um, when he actually ended up going to Coventry instead. And yeah, for, for guys of kind of my age who just missed out on Gothenburg, so we're just slightly behind that. Like yeah. Jess was always one of those the first player I think that we grew up with that were like, wow. Because he was one of us as well, a local lad, you know, like you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he had it all, and I think that I think that four goals at East End Park, you spoke. Oh, about. it was incredible! Yeah, Incre- it was an incredible day. That it was always a hard place to go, but him and him and Hillhouse, it was almost like clockwork. You know, it was like telepathic. I think those four hastened Davy Moyes towards retirement. I think possibly that day. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that League Cup final itself, though, your memories of that game. Um, you end up with a we'll call it an assist. Let's say it's an assist for the winning goal. Yeah, yeah. Um, your long throw causes absolute havoc in the Rangers box and the ball eventually falls to Paul Mason who slams in the winner Can you just was, is that one of those games that's just an absolute blur can't really remember much about it I still remember turning around and seeing Jockey Scott running about on the touchline um, but it was just such a, a relief more than anything for me um, I don't even know how I played that day to be honest with you but just at, when the final whistle went it was almost like I've won a major tournament competition if I don't do anything in the rest of my career, I've done it. Yeah, that's how that's how much it meant to me, and and then obviously the you know you get the open top bus and, and which is a, a, a great experience, but um, just it, it just you know you win like like in your career you win games and okay you win a game there's another game, but to win the, the last game of a tournament against obviously at that point Rangers were spending a lot of money and um, you know they'd all these English internationals there and for us to go and beat them was an incredible, you know, achievement. Um, and, you know, I, I remember Big Alec, you know, on the bus journey coming, going back up to Aberdeen. It was just a, just an incredible, you know, time. And, and you just wanted to do it again. You know, you wish you could put it in a bottle and keep it. Um, and it was just, obviously, you get that medal and, you know, you keep looking at it, you keep looking at it. You know, you can't believe that, you know, a, a, lo- a local boy from Garth Dees managed to do it. And, and as I say, if it was the last game I ever played, I would have been a happy man. Yeah, and you kind of just touched on there a little bit, but can you explain to our listeners, you know, as, as a professional footballer, getting that first trophy in, in the bag, yeah. 
does that just drive you? Does that give you more hunger as a player to go on and win more? I, th- I think for me, it gave me confidence in myself. You know, that I've proved to myself, you know, you're still playing in front of big crowds and, and a cup final pressure game that, you know, obviously I did okay that day. But to get that medal and, you know, it's something that you dream of. You know, I know many, you know, kids, you know, even when I, when I was growing up in Aberdeen, there were players that were better players than I was that maybe didn't get the luck, didn't get the breaks. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to do it. And, you know, I can say that I've got this this medal, you know what I mean? And no one can ever take it away from me. So, um, and again, being from Aberdeen and obviously having a hand in the winning goal, it's just that, and at Hamden, it was just a, a fantastic experience. And um, it's probably, of all the things I've won, it's probably the most memorable one that I've, that I've got, you know? And again, particularly after the disappointment of the previous two injured and then having a, a nightmare to, to finally get third time lucky, you could say. It was just a, a, it was a relief, a, a massive relief. And did you find that the kind of more experienced members of the squad, so the likes of, you know, Willie, Art McLeish, did they have like a newfound respect, I guess, for maybe the younger players in the squad now, now that they've got, these these guys are winners now, you know? I think, you know, the belief came back that we could still go and, and beat Rangers and Celtic. Um, which is, it's not an easy thing to do. And there might have been a spell where, you know, maybe it was a bit, can we do it, can we not? But it just shows you. But I think likes of Willie Miller and, and Alan McLeish, they've been through it so much um, that, I'm not saying they carry, they, they obviously they helped me a hell of a lot in, in cup finals and in big games and what have you. Um, but when you're playing against those guys, they've been been there and done it. Um and I think it's for them. It's it's expected that Aberdeen, the team that they're in, Aberdeen, are going to win and they're going to beat anybody. In a matter of weeks after that League Cup final, um, the the Dons bring in a European Cup winner and a Dutch internationalist in, in Hans Gilhaus um, from PSV. Um, you know something that now you can only dream of that even a Scottish club would bring in a a Dutch internationalist, let alone let alone Aberdeen. And, and you're part of the team. Um, and I think you grabbed a goal this day as well, actually when Hans makes his debut at East End Park and it takes Hans, you know, no time at all to introduce himself to Scottish football. Uh, an overhead kick after 12 minutes puts Aberdeen ahead and then your cross ball sets up a second for him shortly afterwards. What were your kind of first impressions of Hans when he came in? It's weird because all these, you know, so-called superstars come in and he was just a real down-to-earth person, pretty quiet. Obviously, the you know, Paul Mason, Van der Ark, you know, the... All the, the the Dutch players would all stick together, and you know, the first time I'd experienced an address in a different language. Um, you know, they'd all talk their own language and what have you. But I mean, that, that game against Dunfermline, you know, you knew he was good. You know, because the only reason we got him was because they signed him with Mario. Mario, yeah. Um, <laughs> which uh, you know, we're, we're fortunate that, that happened. And in that first game, uh, there was one there was one move he had it when he actually flicked the ball around. Um, I don't even know who it was, John Watson or somebody flicked the ball around him and it went around the other side and the pace of him was incredible. Um, you know, the low centre of gravity, but the goals he scored that first two and then, um, you know, he scored some fantastic goals um, throughout his time. And um, But as I say, you know, you sort of pinch yourself that you're in the same team as, you know, that's, uh, you know, big time players, you know. And then I think that season he went and played in the World Cup or European Championships, you know, you know, an Aberdeen player, you know, going playing for Holland, which is unheard of, you know, in a massive stage. Yeah, that's right. No, he was part of the Italian 90 squad for, for Holland, which is just, you know, like you say, when you look back at it now, it's, it's, it's kind of almost crazy. 
defeats to Hibs, Celtic and Rangers and, and three draws in the spin in February leave the kind of league campaign floundering. But progress in the Scottish Cup is swift. Park this on Morton Hearts and United are all dispatched in style to set up that showpiece final against Celtic at Hamden in Maine. A week before, a youthful Aberdeen side hammer Celtic 3-1 at Parkhead. But the cup final itself is memorable only for being terrible. Um, <laughs> was there any particular reason you think that that game ended up being so bad? I don't I think it was just the pitch was all rutted and hard and it was boiling hot. And I think both teams could have played today and no one would have scored. Um, it was such an awful game. I, I don't think I was as nervous as I was before that, you know, that game as was a League Cup game, maybe because I'd played. But we'd had a, a long season, a lot of games. Um, and it was just, you know, it was always going to go to penalty kicks. And that the, the penalty kicks itself was, you know, probably one of the most nerve-wracking things that I've had to endure. Um, you know, I, I think in extra time, Mike Galloway gave me a dead leg. So by the time the game finished, I couldn't hardly move, couldn't hardly walk. And um, so, you know, obviously, they the, the, the pick the five penalty kicks and obviously there's no chance I'm going to be in the five, thankfully. But then the way it works out, it goes to the sixth penalty kick and I'm thinking, oh, no. And I've totally seized up by this time. And I remember looking along and there was Brian Irvin, there was Graham Watson, um, and it goes to the sixth or seventh penalty kick. And, and I think to myself, I'm going to have to man up here a lot. I can't have Graham Watson taking a penalty kick. So for some reason, I just says, I'll go. Because by this time, it wasn't even planned. It was just whoever fancied taking one. So I remember walking up. I'm thinking to myself, I've got, I haven't taken a penalty kick since boys club. We didn't even, in those days, you know, we didn't even practice it. And I'm walking up and I'm thinking, I have got no, it's a Celtic end. I'm going, I've got no clue what I'm away to do here. And everybody afterwards said, oh, it was such a cool penalty kick. It was a two-step run up. But it was because my leg was, you know, it was, I, could, I couldn't even run. So I step up and I try and hit it towards Pat Bonner's right-hand side. And thankfully I miss hit it and it goes straight down the middle because if I'd hit it the way I wanted to hit it, he'd have saved and then I would have been the, you know, it wouldn't have been Anton Rogan, it would have been me um, that sort of blew it. Yeah, because you're you're in sudden death stage at that point. You need to you need to score to keep things alive. Yeah, and then when, when I scored, it was like, Phew, thank goodness for that. And then obviously, you know, Brian gets a winner and, you know, Snelder saves it. And and that was, obviously, that was fantastic to actually do it. You know, it was such a, a dull, boring game. And, and eventually, you, you, whoever way you win it, you know, that sort of spark comes back again and, and then you think, oh, you just won the, well, you just won the cup double, uh, an incredible achievement. And, and that's one we've we've asked a few of the guys who were in that that team now this question because um, I kind of personally feel that at the time it maybe didn't get the recognition that it really deserves getting that cup double. And it's only really now over the passing of time that you know St Johnston have been the only team now um, since that that Aberdeen side outside of Rangers or Celtic to win the, the domestic cup double. And with all due respect to St. Johnston, they didn't face either Rangers or Celtic in either of their finals. It's still a great achievement to do what they did. Looking back now in retrospect, it's really a re- it's a fantastic achievement, that, that Cup double last season. Yeah, I, I think, I always think at, at clubs that if you win a Cup and then you win the next one, it, everybody thinks, oh, well, you've won another Cup. You know, it's like, if you haven't won one for two years, it, it's, it's massive. And I think the way the game was as well, it, as you say, it was a horrendous game. And um, even afterwards, we stayed in, I think we, Octavarda, I think we went to a hotel in Octavarda and um, you know, even the celebrations was pretty subdued. You know, it was you no, know, there was no wild party, it was just you know, well, you know, we sort of you know won the cup and then you do the open top bus again. Um, but I think it I think because 
you've already won a cup in the same cup. It's like, oh, well, you've you've won another cup. But it wasn't such a, like you say, now it's obviously it's pretty big that, you know, we, apart from St. Johnston, we're the only one that's done it for a, a number of years. Then. But I think it's always the same. You know, I always find when I look back at my career and, you know, whatever I've won, sometimes you don't appreciate it at the time. It's not until you look back. You move house and you see all these medals you've got and you think, oh, I've had a, a half-decent career here. But at the time, a lot of it's a relief just to, to get over there at that line. Yeah. Tio kind of touched on it as well. This other day. It's almost like when you're in your career, you're in just almost like a tunnel mode and you're just keep going, keep going, keep going. It's only when you come out of it, you go, actually, shit, like, there was all this. It's amazing. Yeah, and you wonder, and it passes so quick, and you wonder where the time's gone, and, you know, you wish, you, I wish I could do it all over again, and actually enjoy it probably more this time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously winning that two cups that season, that must have really given the squad a lot of belief heading into the 1991 campaign that actually we could maybe go one even further this time and actually go and win the league. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that was the the belief, you know, obviously you, you beat Rangers and Celtic in one season in two cup finals, and you come back and, you know, it's just a belief, but it's it's weird that that season because no one, no one came out and says, "Oh, we can win the league." I think inwardly everybody thought, like Alex Smith didn't stand up and say, "Our aim is to win the league." It was just like each game it came and gone, and um, you know, obviously we we went a, a number of points behind, um, and somehow I think it was only two points for the win in those days as well, and somehow we managed to claw it back, and it was just a, I, I, I don't think. I don't think there was pressure on us because we were so far behind um, and it wasn't until you got closer you think oh you know the Rangers had so many injuries that you know we've got a chance here I, I mean we'll just we'll quickly run through that season so season starts well it's an unbeaten run of nine games to start the campaign um, before a 1-0 defeat to Rangers at Hamden in the League Cup semi-final um, means that we exit from that tournament and that's followed up by a, a 5-0 defeat at, at St Johnston um, and that's a game that over the years there's been a lot of rumours and about dressing room discontent and fallouts in the squad and the run up to that St Johnston match. Is there any truth in any of those rumours? No, well, I heard rumours that there was a fight. Alan McLeish and Hans Hill had a fight, but it's never happened. I was at the back of the bus reading a Beano or something. That didn't happen. Um, there was, it was just a normal day on the bus, pre-match meal, go to the game. Um, and I think because Aberdeen would never lose 5 nothing. You know, that that was, you know, even the Rangers Celtic, you would never have lost 5 nothing, And and to do it at St. Johnston, um, I know I got I got sent off, um, took a wild swing at Alan Moore, I think early on in the first half. I think we were 3-0 down at that point as well. And I, I just don't know what happened. It was just total disaster. Um, it, it wasn't the prep. Everything was just the normal thing. Everybody was calm. Um, but for some reason, we just started off badly. And, um, and I think all these stories came out based on the fact that Aberdeen don't get beat five nothing by anybody, or even four nothing. You know, um, I think up until then, I don't think I'd, we'd had a heavy defeat in my time playing there, um, and that was probably the, the big one. Um, and, and I think that's where all the rumours came. And um, so, you know, obviously it was, it was a shock for everybody. Um, I remember going back in the bus; everybody was just uh, it was the quietest bus ever. A bad day at the office all round, I think, is the best way to describe that one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I want to forget. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, superbly, Aberdeen rallied from that defeat, unbeaten in the league until the 8th of December before a, a 1-0 defeat at Hearts. And then that's followed by a, a pretty sh- a shock exit, I guess you would describe it, from the Scottish Cup to Motherwell at Pataudry. But then this sparks Aberdeen into life again and 
the team embarks on a sensational run of 12 matches and beating 11 wins in total to bring Aberdeen to the, the brink of history in a final day shootout at, at Ibrox. Um, the Dons obviously beat St. Johnston 2-1 the week before, um, which ties in with Rangers getting beat 3-2 at Motherwell. Can you remember the atmosphere around the club that week in the run-up building up to that game at Ibrox? Well, I remember, I remember the, the game, uh, sorry, when we beat St. Johnston. And our game finished earlier. I think it was a lot of injuries at Far Park. Our game finished earlier. And during that time, Motherwell scored. And obviously, radio was on or whatever. And it was almost like, well, we only need a draw. You know, I think before that, we'd have to go there and beat Rangers in the, in the last game, um, which obviously it's a, it's a tall order. But I felt that we sort of celebrated as if we'd won the league in the dressing room afterwards. Oh, well, we only have to go to Ibrox. I think that was the mentality okay, for that day. Um, and then, you know, I remember obviously the bus journey going down. It was obviously quite a quiet bus uh, going down. And um, it was just a weird feeling because at the back of your mind, you were thinking, oh, a draw's enough. Um, and, you know, it's, it's throughout my coaching career as well, it's very, very difficult to go and play for a draw. Um, and I think on the day, um, I think we played three up most of the games. Um, and I think we changed it to two up. And, um, but, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that, that was the reason we, we didn't win the game. Um, I, I personally think the fact that we only had a draw went against us. I think if we had to go there and win, we, I think we'd have won that day. Um, and then again, <clears throat> we were, um, Ibrox was getting, the club deck was getting all, you know, built on top and we were in a porter cabin. And, yeah. Um, so, you know, I remember coming in after warm-up and the porter cabin was virtually moving with all the atmosphere and, and the noise of Rangers supporters and everything. And, you know, it's intimidating, you know, at best. And, and I remember um, Big Alec, just a couple of minutes before Alec, uh, sorry, before Mark Haley scored the first goal. And he just says to me, he said, Davey, we're almost there. We're halfway there. And then, you know, Rangers scored. And it was just such a, you know, I think after that, it was we rallied around and we kept going. But I think after that, it was it was went flat. You know, it was very difficult. You go in at half time and obviously try and organise things and, and change things a little bit. But the fact is that, you know, you're in a port cabin and, and I'm not making excuses, but I just, I do feel that if we had to win that day, I think we would have done it. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of Aberdeen fans still hold the belief now that the decision to switch system on the day and try and get a draw is what did us for. Um, and you've kind of explained, yeah. obviously, you, you kind of maybe feel that, that that hindered us a little bit and, as you say, from your own coaching experience and even from my own experience playing, you know, not to the level you guys have played that, but it's always much harder to try and set up to get a draw than to motivate a team to go and win. It is, yeah, yeah. I think as well, you know, if you set up for a draw and, and you lose a goal, it's very difficult to change to have an, an attacking mindset, you know, because you're setting your way and, and but I, I, maybe if we got to half time, we might have had a, you know, a chance to do it and maybe the Angels would have been a little bit frustrated um, but, you know, the fact is we lost that goal and, you know, obviously their, their support was was pretty good that day, and um, you know did so many injuries that day. You know, I think Ian Durant was playing as a left back, and you know, it, I think it was an opportunity for us. But I just, you know, often think back if we had to go there and win, what would have happened? It's an interesting one as well because I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus with this one at all. Mm -hmm. But I often wonder as well if, if Tio hadn't been injured, if things might have changed yeah. a little bit there. Um, I think. You know, Mark Caitlin does an absolute number on Michael Watt early doors and it's no 
it's, it's not Michael fault, Michael Watts' fault, but he's a young lad making his way in the game and in, in oh, a yeah. highly intimidating atmosphere, and he doesn't really get the protection from a referee you'd maybe expect a goalkeeper these days to get. There's a lot of what ifs in that in that kind of scenario. Um, a lot of the guys we've spoken to who, who played that day, um, they'll all agree that this is pretty much the worst moment of their footballing career. Is that the same for yourself? Would you say it was? I remember just sitting in that port cabin after the game and. Um, I actually went home to Aberdeen. I went with my wife um, that day after the after the game, and it was it was really weird because obviously it's the last time that I played for Aberdeen, and I knew that I'd be leaving. But it was just a horrible way to to finish it, you know. And and I knew how hard, you know, and how long how long it was since Aberdeen, you know, won the league, and to have so been so far behind and clawing. It's you know so much hard work and effort, and you know maybe a bit of luck and, and what have you all the effort you put on and it's just gone in, you know, 90 minutes and you're just totally deflated. Um, and obviously it's been a long season as well and you're, you're tired, you're, you're, you're fatigued and what have you. And, um, you know, and like every cup final and every game like that, you know, when you're on the bus or you're sleeping in your bed at night, you think of, if we win, how am I going to feel? This is going to be great. And you only ever think of the winning part of it. Yeah, you know, and then when you when the big disappointment comes, it it it's oh, it's it's ten times worse than um, than what you think it's going to be because you don't you don't obviously you know that there's a chance you're not going to win, but you know it's it's that hammer blow when it doesn't happen and you put so much into it and it's gone. You know, for me, I look at that I look at that day a lot, and it it always seems to me like a bit of a sliding doors moment, almost in Scottish football to an extent because. If if Aberdeen get the draw or get a win and, and, and win the league that day, it obviously stops Rangers winning nine in a row, dead in its tracks at that point. That doesn't that doesn't happen. The Champions League is something that's just beginning to to kind of come round as well. While there's always going to be an inherent advantage for the Glasgow team just simply with the level of support and the finances they can pull in. Yeah. It is one of those you always look at as an Aberdeen fan and go, it could have changed the face of Scottish football to an extent, um, if Aberdeen had, had won that league that season. Yeah. No, definitely. And I think Rangers spending power as well, um, like like I said, you know Terry Butcher and Graham Roberts and Chris Woods, you know, um, it's very very difficult to compete with those. But I think over the season, you know, we, we certainly competed, and you know, it could have gone either way on the last day. And like like I just keep saying, it's it's so much effort, and I mean that season to do what we did, we're almost underdogs to get to where we got to, um, but we just sort of failed at the last part and. Just think for myself, obviously, I went to Rangers after that and, um, you know, if Aberdeen had won, you know what I mean? It, you know, it would have been totally, you know, different to what it turned out to be. You know, that's a selfish, selfish kind of way. But, you know, and a lot of people have asked me because it was the, the last game I played for Aberdeen and every game that I played, no matter who where I was or whatever, I gave everything. And I had the same disappointment as, you know, Jim Bett and Stuart McKimmy had after the game. Because you're a professional player and you want to win, and obviously it's my local team as well. So um, it was such a it was such a hammer blow, you know, and it was such a, a real emptiness. Yeah, and you've kind of just touched on it a little bit. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask the question just now about this. I've seen it reported in some places, and I don't know how accurate this is, but so I'll ask you that that you'd already maybe knew ahead of that game that you were maybe likely heading to to Rangers in that close season. Well, the whole story was um, I'd. I wasn't a lot. I'd only been married about a year. So my wife, Kim, and myself, we bought a house in Kings Wells. It was before Kings Wells was the size it was. Um, it was a semi-detached eagle home, what do you call it, um, house. 
So they, they built a new development for it, and it was a detached house. My thing was, I was quite happy to stay at Aberdeen, and I was um, looking to buy um, a detached house. But obviously, the wages I was on wasn't wasn't the the big amount that some of the other players were on. Um, and obviously, I had a, a car that, an Asa GTE, which was a car that I couldn't afford. Um, insurance was big. In those days, the mortgage rates were big, so I was struggling a little bit. Um, but I decided that, I, I basically spoke with Alex Smith and um, obviously it goes through the board and what have you. And I asked for, you know, obviously an increase and in, in what have you. And, and there was a certain amount that I would have stayed for. Um, so it wasn't quite what I was looking for. But um, at that point, I was the only player that didn't have a, a sponsored car or a, or a club car. Again, I was a little bit naive um, in those days. So I says to them, I says, like, okay, I'm quite happy with that, but couldn't I get a club car? Because I couldn't afford to have the car. I've got to keep the car I had. And um, they said, no, 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 you're not a big enough personality to get a club car or a, a sponsored car. And I goes, all right, okay. So then I said, um, Theo Snelders, he had a, a club car when he first came, the club bottom one. And then I think it was Sandy Thane or Lawrence Akemney um, gave him a car. So you had this car sitting there. And I says, well, you've got his car there. Why don't you get I'll take that one. And I was told that they would sell it to me. At that point, the penny dropped that they don't really want to keep me. They, obviously, they want to sort of cash in, which is fair enough because they've done that in the past. Mm -hmm. Because I think I think when I went back and asked for the, a car, they must have thought to myself, oh, no, he wants to stay. You know, there must have been a bit of a panic. And then it was after that, my agent says, you know, I, I don't think they really want to keep you. Um, I mean, I think I, I probably could have stayed, but I, I just felt that I, I couldn't afford with what I had, mm -hmm. you know, the, the financial part of it. Um, so that was maybe, what, three or four weeks beforehand. And then um, I think talks came. There was, was Aston Villa, Sheffield United. Um, but previously, previously to all that, there was um, what's his, it was Manchester United, there was Liverpool, there was Tottenham. But when the contract was expiring then, obviously those clubs weren't there. Um, and then obviously the Rangers one came in and you know obviously I decided to go there. And I, I decided probably a, a week or so before um, that I was going to go. Um, to Rangers, I, I sort of agreed to go, and you know, and I, I must admit, my dad wasn't very happy, like many Aberdeen supporters were. But um, you know, and I've never really told that story. I got a lot of you know stick mm -hmm. um, for for doing what I did. I certainly understand how everybody felt, but you know, I, I wasn't at that point going to come out and say why I left or or whatever because Aberdeen was a fantastic club to me, and um, and you know it's it's happened a lot. Um, you know previously that you know they bring through some young players to sell them on for a fee, and um, like every club, um, there's always a, a price for every player, and um, and it's not until recently that I've, I've said that side of the story. So, um, um, but I, but I certainly understand how Aberdeen supporters you know feel, um, or you know some of them still feel the same way, and um, but it was just something for me that you know I had to say progress myself and and one of the things like I keep saying I was very how would I say very insecure and doubted my ability that um, I felt that going to a club at Rangers I'm still playing against the same team um, I'm only a couple of hours away from home um, I'm playing against the same players the same so it's an easier transition you know um, so you know that's really how it all came about and that's that's why I went there and but again I you know a, a fantastic time at Aberdeen and um, you know, was well looked after when I was there. You've kind of answered a few things I was going to bring up actually, just in that there. I mean, because obviously it's fair to say that the departure to Rangers, you know, left a it was a controversial one anyway. Let's 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 
be polite about it. And were you kind of aware, do you think, at the time when you made the move or, or thought about making the move to Ibrox, just how controversial it might end up actually being? Uh, no, again, um, I didn't think I was anybody special. I didn't think I was a famous person. I didn't think I was the greatest player. So when I when I went to Rangers, I didn't think there would be a a big fuss because I didn't believe in my own ability, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and I was I was quite shocked um, how it happened. Um, you know, my dad he got his car, you know, scratched and, and and all sorts of things, and my brother got bullied at school. So, you know, I didn't think of all these things at the time. And I think it all hit home when I again being naive. Um, I went to watch. My old team, Aberdeen, play Celtic in the, I think it was the League Cup, League Cup semi-final summer at um, Ibrox. And, and I went in the Aberdeen end and we're a little bit late in getting there and you know, I got a bit, of, a bit of stick and I was actually escorted out for my own safety. Um, you know, so I was actually in a, a stadium where both sets of fans <laughs> didn't like me, um, which I found a bit quite unbelievable because, like I said, I didn't think I was anything special. You know, I didn't think anybody would be concerned, you know, because I thought, well, we'll get another left back and, and, and what have you. But I know, you know, a local boy, Aberdon, Aberdonian, you know, basically uh, signing for the rivals. But, you know, there's obviously, that, like I said, there's reasons why I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of it was out with my control, um, you know, more than anything. But um, it was funny, but not funny. But I remember I, I played in, I think it was a B international game um, when I know in fact, it was um, I played for Scotland against Switzerland at Petodre, mm-hmm. and I'll never forget. I was in the home dressing room. That's where obviously the Scottish team were there. And I remember walking through the back, and I came across Teddy Scott, and I almost tried to avoid him, and um, obviously gave him a big hug and congratulated me how my career's been and what have you. But I was always the same when I went back to Petodre. I was very unsure, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously I, I got a bit of stick from the sidelines and and what have you and. But you know, it's urges me to to try and play well and and, and what have you. And it was it was hard. It was hard going back to Victoria, I must admit, the first time in particular. Because it's it's an interesting one from one perspective. Because you know, the likes of I think I think the main reason that or that I remember anyway for it being such a big deal at the time was because it was the first time in such a long time that anyone had gone from Aberdeen to Rangers. And I think given obviously we'd run Rangers so close the season before you know, et cetera, et cetera. We, we were genuine challengers. I think mm. maybe that's part of the reason why, but it's always been an interesting one from my perspective as well, because, you know, the likes of Stephen Wright, Theo Schnelders make similar moves over the next few seasons. And n- neither of those two players received the same level of stick that, that you got. Do you think there's any particular reason for that? Or do you think it's just because you were the first? I think um, at that point, um, you know, the Rangers were just beginning the, Sort of revolution, you could say, of, of spending the big money, and um, and and I think left back's always a very difficult position to fill. You know, Doug Rugby and that's been hard. Even since I've left, it's it's been hard. Obviously, it's it's changed a little bit now, but um, and I think as well because a, a local boy who grew up in Aberdeen as well. I think that's you know probably another reason. Yeah. Um, but as I say, at the time I didn't think anything of it, but obviously uh, as, as time wore on. I knew exactly what it was all about. And, um, you know, it was hard. I mean, I would come back up to, to Aberdeen to visit, my, obviously, my, my, my parents, my wife's parents, and then what have you. And, um, you know, you go out for dinner at night and, you know, I was I got a bit of stick in the restaurants and, and stuff like that. But again, I thought to myself, why me? You know, but 
you know, as you get older, you realise why. Do you feel that, that, like, the move, the kind of fallout from it, does that tarnish in your mind your kind of time as, as a player with Aberdeen? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think um, it doesn't because I loved every minute of it. You know, I, I did what a lot of Aberdonian kids wanted to do, play for your, your team. And, um, you know, I, I remember the first time I ever played at Petaudry was in a Champions League. It's in a Champions League, Champions League Cup final. Mm-hmm. You know, just thinking how big that pitch was in the crowd. And, and then eventually you go and play, you know, you end up playing the same team as your heroes, you know, Miller, McLeish, Leighton, Peter Weir playing in front of me, you know, John Hewitt, guys like that. Um, it's just a fantastic experience. And um, and, I, and I think for myself, you know, it, it, was a, it was a fantastic part of my career. I could go through so many people um, that helped me at, at Aberdeen and, you know, fortunate enough to, to play under Alec Ferguson. But, you know, it, nothing will change. It took me a long time to go back to Petaudry. Mm-hmm. Um out with going to play there. I think the last time was um, about maybe two two or three years ago when um, Aberdeen played St Mirren um, in the in the Scottish Cup or the Scottish League. I think it was the Scottish Cup. That's the first time I went with a friend um, into the into the main stand. And to be fair, no one gave me any stick that day. But I was always been very apprehensive about going mm-hmm. going there, you know, because my my. My two boys will go. My brother's a, a mad Aberdeen fan. He's season t- he lives in Auburn and he he drives to Petaudry to go and watch the team. He's asked me if I wanted to go and watch, and I'm a bit sort of two minds whether to go or not, you know. <laughs> and we touched on it earlier on. Obviously, that final day at Ibrox, um, that's what rounds off your Aberdeen career. Um, 177 first team appearances, three goals in total. Then you make 250 appearances for Rangers, and then you move on to Leeds United in 1997. Um, it's recurring injuries there that limit you to just 26 league appearances in your four seasons, which all come actually in your debut season before you decide to retire from the game in, in 2001 before a, a brief return as a player assistant at, uh, at Montrose. But you also picked up three caps for Scotland as well. Um, do you look back on your career and feel that you deserved more than three caps? No, I, I don't. I don't really. I think because at the time, you know, you look at Andy Roxburn, Craig Brown, up until Steve Clark, they were the last managers to get the country to, you know, national finals. So, and they had, obviously it was Tom Boy, Tosh McKinley, Morris Malpass in those days. Um, so I wasn't, obviously I'd like to have played more, but I, I, like I keep saying, my I wasn't the most confident in my own ability. So what happened was, you know, you sit in a stand, you wouldn't play and, and you'd go back, I'd go back to my club and have a lack of confidence and eventually I had to say, look, I want to play for Scotland, but I'm not going to play it. Then I just didn't want to go back kind of thing. So I did that for my own, you know, self-worth. You know, I was, I've been asked a few times, would I change anything? And, you know, I wouldn't change anything out of my career to get more Scottish caps. You know, I've done it. And again, like playing for Aberdeen, you know, it's a dream to play for your country. You know, okay, it was only three times at the, the senior level, but, you know, I've done it. And I think as well, it's one of these circumstances, isn't it, that I feel that, obviously getting international caps is still difficult. Obviously, you've still got to be an exceptionally good player to get to that level. But I feel that it's maybe easier in today's game to pick up international caps. There's more games, there's more, you know, there's more, I don't want to call them friendly games, but, you know, Nations League times, things, people can maybe experiment a little bit with a squad rather than it's just World Cup or European qualifiers and that's all it is. Um, and I wonder, yeah, if, if you played in a slightly different generation I guess whether you'd, you'd have picked up a lot more than just, just the three yeah yeah yeah, maybe I mean there wasn't that many many games but I think 
like you say, you know, even like, you know, Kenny Douglas and Willie Miller, those, that kind of era, you know, in today's game, they probably have 200 caps for Scotland, but they hardly played games. And it's, you know, getting, getting in the Hall of Fame at 50 caps was a big thing, but, you know, you can quickly back that up now. Um, it's a bit like the, the European games, Champions League games. You know, you've got all these records that Ronaldo scored all these goals, but they've played 10 times more games, or yeah, it's like 50% more games than, you know, clubs did in the in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. So you started your managerial career with some spells at Elgin City and Montrose before you eventually headed over to, to America and, and um, ended up in Phoenix. As, as head coach of the USL Pro side Phoenix FC, we signed Darren Mackey actually, of, of all people, following his departure from Aberdeen. But that's correct. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Things didn't really work out in Phoenix with with that club. Was there any? Can you shed some light on what happened with, with that club? I, I, I actually ran a, a club, um, a youth club, youth football soccer club, as they call it, there for ten years. And in during that time, probably for a spell of eighteen months, uh, I was a part owner um, of Phoenix FC and. Um, unfortunately, you know, the group that we were with and there was a sort of unsavoury owner, should I say, that, that sort of joined us and he wasn't quite what he said he was. So um, quickly the money dried up and, um, you know, the franchise was taken away and, and obviously went to, there's been a few owners now until, I think it's Phoenix Rising now, where Didier Drogba's at. Um, but, you know, it was, it was good, but it was almost like you, you're chasing a dream. Um, your heart ruled your head and there was a few of us like that that maybe invested some money into it and um, it just didn't work out you know I think Phoenix as well is a hard place because it's you know the season runs during August and it's about 120 degrees in, yeah. in August so it's it's hard I signed Scott Morrison as well he was there as well and then Darren came over and I think they found it hard with the heat um, Darren came over and he, he was he was absolutely brilliant pre-season great and then he got injured the day before the first game of the season. And because it's a short season, he hardly played. Um, and there was quite a quite a funny story about Darren. We were playing Tampa and he hadn't scored a goal. You know, the season wasn't going that well. And, you know, there comes a point when you think this is a turning point, this is going to be it. So we're playing really well. Halftime came, second half came out with this player, Anthony Obadai, that he played the Ajax. Anyway, passed the goalkeeper. Goalkeeper brought him down. Penalty kick. Darren Mackey steps up. And there's a lake, a big lake behind the goal. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, this is it. The season's going to turn now. And he hit this over the bar into the lake. And um, about two minutes later, a look. And the ball, uh, sorry, um, Tampa run up the pitch and score 1-0. And I just turned around and I saw this ball floating away down this lake and uh, down this river. And I just thought, no, this sums it up. And then after that, I just went bad to worse. You know, the, the financial part became an issue with the club and um that was that was that was basically the the end of, of phoenix fc yeah i think um that story it's funny you brought that up the, the the three of us who run the podcast we've got a video of that actually um you still got it you? yeah one of the boys found it a while ago and um it's about five minutes later like you say the game moves on and there's just this ball bobbing in the lake behind the goal it's like <laughs> oh man it's uh it's unbelievable oh. but uh yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you spent quite a bit of time, obviously, in the US working at, 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 at those levels. And it's obviously the environment from which Stephen Glass has has, has left yeah. to, to, to join uh, Aberdeen. Do you think that, obviously, things are a bit of a struggle just now for Stephen. Um, we're recording this just a couple of days after the 2-1 defeat um, to Dundee, and uh, we'll have to wait and see what ends up happening. 
in the near future with Stephen. But do you think that that environment in the US at that sort of level is potentially a good grounding place for young managers? Though? Yeah, I think it is. But I think um, the USA, it, it can be a little bit false at the same time. You know, um, the supporters-wise, you know, there's no real... Because every club's relatively new, they don't have a history and they don't have like a passionate Aberdeen support or a Liverpool support or what have you. It's just people that go for a day out, you know, and, and if you don't win games, no one's on your case. You know, it's like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll go there and we'll have some hamburgers and we'll talk to our mates and have a few drinks and it's a day out, you know. Um, and, and a lot of the, the sports in, in the USA obviously are all like that. Um, and I think when you come to a club like Aberdeen, there's so much pressure. Um, and I, I don't think that, obviously, Stevens played there. Um, Aberdeen's played at Newcastle he's played at you know obviously some big clubs um, but it's always hard you know going from that environment to here um, to Scotland um, you know I, I find that um, you know when you come back I'd lived in America for 10 years and you come back to, to Scotland and you know you maybe go to one or two games and you can just see the passion that the supporters have got um, and you know it's, it's, it's a lot it's a hard pressure and, and I always think for like Sir Stephen it's a little bit like to a lesser extent, you know, obviously Alex Ferguson leaving and even Derek McInnes, you know, left. Um, he'd been there for, what, seven years and everything was done his way. And and the, I always feel that when a change like that happens, there's always going to be, it's always going to go backwards before it goes forwards. Um, and, you know, I think the appointment itself is, you know, it's, it's, it's a brave appointment to, to bring in, you know, obviously Stephen from a, a different country and whatever. But, you know, it's, Totally different to, you know, the usual guys that get sacked and they just move from club to club. And, you know, maybe in time it'll, it'll, it'll work itself out. Um, but, you know, it's it's always going to be a hard to, to replace, you know, I mean, Derek McInnes, I know that, you know, obviously I keep in touch with a lot of things that happen. And, um, you know, there's calls for Derek's head. We've been there too long and what have you. But the problem is, is that, you know, no matter who comes in after it, Arsenal's the same. Arsenal Wenger's there for 20 years and yeah. they go backwards. So it's it's all it's inevitable that's going to happen, but you just got to hope that it, that the bounce back. And but like I say, it's a you know America's a very laid back. Even the the football environment's very laid back, and it's not sort of you know blood and guts. Um, you know obviously it's you know you go and play Rangers and Celtic, you're playing against a totally different team, different style of play. You know yeah, you go and play you know Livingston and, and St Mirren, roll their sleeves up, um, and you've got to be prepared for those games and. And maybe that's something you know. You know, hopefully, the next you know few weeks they're playing the, the sort of top three teams at the moment in the next three games, and maybe that's the games that they they turn and shine. So I think it's interesting just now as well because he's also brought a couple of guys, you know, guys like Henry Appleu as part of his coaching staff, who's you know never been involved in top flight football, um, certainly in the UK, let alone Scotland. And it's okay; these guys might be really good on the analytics front or on a tactical level, but for me, I'm always just like how much of a culture shock is it going to be to come to Scotland and just see that you can kind of do all the analysis, you can do all the tactical work all you want, but when you come up against a team like Dundee at the weekend, who just make it, the second half in particular was, was what the best way I could describe the second half was a shit fest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Made it niggly, made it difficult, made it a nasty game. You can do all the analysis and tactical work you want mm. in the world for that. Nothing's going to prepare you for that. And my, my concern, I guess, with, with, with Stephen at the moment is the fact he doesn't have any real experience around him. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, he's got Alan Russell as well, and Alan played for LA Blues and I had Phoenix FC, and um, he was at a club in California, a youth club. He used to 
couple of times crossed paths with him. Um, but again, they're, they're guys that have been, obviously Alan and Stephen have been out of Scottish game for a while. It'd be a little bit like myself, you know, if I came back to Scotland in some capacity, you know, I'd have to sort of, you know, relearn it a little bit. Um, but, you know, in the in the MLS and USL, you know, the games are nice. You know, everybody sort of plays a similar way. There's there's no blood and guts. There's nobody trying to kick you to death and, you know, sit in and make it difficult. Everybody just wants to play the, the beautiful game. So I think, um, I think at a club, plus, you know, Aberdeen's history as well, it's, you know, Aberdeen are expected to win. Um, you know, every week, um, and, and go to to Glasgow and go and compete. You know, even though the last few years it, you know, it maybe hasn't been like that, but that's still the expectations. It's a big club, um, and you know, I think, I think, I think that the bigger teams might take care of themselves because against Celtic, I you know I thought they were going a bit unlucky not to to get something from the Celtic game. But when you go and play, you know, your Dundees and um, Livingston's, you know, it's it's different games. Obviously, asked for tough, but it's just. It's not the same type of game. You've got to adapt to each game you play. Let's just go back to yourself, David. So obviously, 2017, you make the move to Real Kashmir, and it's a real left-field move for anyone, I think, looking at it. What was it about the move to Kashmir that appealed to you? I'd come to a point in America where, you know, in, in America, what happens, and I'm not, I'm not scared to work or, or what have you, and obviously we lived in Phoenix, which is a lovely place to live, sunshine all year, but, you know, I, I first started off coaching three youth teams, then it was three teams plus director of the boys and director of the, the girl, girls and boys. And then it was executive director doing payroll, doing the insurance, still coaching three teams. You know, you're waking up in the morning and you're, you're doing emails first thing and your phone and last thing at night. Um, it just became, you know, just too much. Um, so eventually I, I decided, you know, enough's enough. And I actually had three offers um, in the space of about six months. And the first one was in uh, China. And uh, obviously I turned that down. And then I'd won in Uganda, I turned that down. And then this one in Real Kashmir came up in India. And I thought to myself, oh, I'll have a go, brand new club, and no structure, just nothing. And I just thought, well, I've got a chance to sort of, you know, stamp my mark on it, do something my way. And um, I jumped against my wife's wishes. I jumped uh, on that flight on New Year's Eve on, I think it was 2016, New Year's Eve. And, you know, left behind my wife and kids in, well, I think Mason was in um, Scotland at the time, um, you know, left them behind and jumped on this adventure, not knowing what I was getting myself in for. I actually left on the Friday night and arrived on the Monday. Um, I had about four flights and big layovers and time differences and, and what have you. And, you know, when I got there, I decided that, you know, what, what am I doing? I, I did no research, didn't realise it was the world's most militarised zone. <laughs> Um, I didn't realise it. I thought every place in India was hot. I didn't realise that um, it's got four seasons. It's got the harshest winter ever um, in Kashmir. So I jumped on that plane, got there. You turned up for the first day of training. There's no kit, no training kit. They took their own ball. No nets on the goal. No dressing rooms. They changed it inside the pitch. And I just thought, I can't believe I just left Phoenix for all this. And um, I think after about five weeks... Um, I decided enough's enough I'd go home it got to a point where um, second day in I woke up and there was about you know two foot of snow so uh, I, one of the owners told me he says oh you won't be able to train today take the day off okay next day what we'll do is we'll go indoor and I thought at the worst it would be a school gym hall um, needless to say I, 
uh, I arrive in this 12 by 6 room, green carpet, windows, two ceiling fans, and I think that's a reception to go into this school hall. It turns out that's where we're training. So I um, made up some nonsense to portray 25 adults in that area. Somehow, no windows were broken. So the next day, um, the owner says, OK, that's the tough pits. They've cleared it. Police have cleared the snow. I go there, and all, all they've done is just had piles of snow. So I had to do some makeup, something. So the next day, I says, OK, let's go back to the the um, back to the indoor place. It's better than nothing. I've got this driver who was always late. So fit, training finished, players are away on the, the bus, the way back to the hotel. I get out. The driver's not there, so I'm waiting and waiting. And as I'm waiting, people are putting furniture back in that room. It was actually somebody's house, somebody's living room we were training in. So um, that's just sort of things that happened. Um, but now, you know, we're, you know, obviously it's a, a well-run club now. Um, it took a little bit of time. You know, it's one of the, you know, there's been obviously documentaries. There's, there's meant to be a movie coming. There's a Netflix series coming. So um, sort of big stuff at the club. And, I'm glad that I've sort of, you know, stuck it out because the first few weeks I just couldn't wait to get home. Um, it was it was terrifying because obviously you don't know anyone, you don't know that. Oh, most people speak English, um, and like it was just grey, it was dull. Obviously, that a wife wasn't talking to me, so um, it was pretty. It was a pretty grim few weeks, but as I say, I'm glad I stuck it out. I can imagine, and I mean, obviously. You spoke about the documentaries just there. They're a brilliant watch. Um, I think they're still available on the iPlayer and stuff like that. So anyone that hasn't seen it should go and check them out. Um, and I'm quite intrigued by these ideas about um, film and Netflix. Well, that'll be a good watch, I think. It's quite an environment you've uh, you found yourself in there. Um, like you say, I mean, it, it's it's gone well. Um, you know, you've obviously been able to get Kashmir promoted up to the I-League, finishing third in, in their first full season there, following that with a fourth-place finish, and then winning the, the IFA Shield in 2020 as well. And COVID curtailed season obviously last year round but we, we touched on it just at the start of the program and before we started uh, recording that's you back in uh, Kashmir now in, in pre-season training getting ready for the for the upcoming season and, and what are your kind of ambitions for for Real Kashmir this season? Um, well, we've recruited quite well this year and um, we've got a Spanish almost a Spanish Scott Brown you could say um, in the middle of the pitch um, we've got an Afghan international playing as a, a centre-back We've got a Brazilian six foot three giant striker, and obviously my son Mason, and and we brought in a lot of experienced players from you know the Indian leagues and what have you. And because I've been here for almost five years now, I know almost every player, and it becomes a little bit easier. So you know the hopes are high. We've had a number of players that left um, and, and came back. Um, obviously, the grass wasn't green on the other side. So um, the owners, you know, obviously, I'm one of the very few coaches that's allowed to. I can basically select all the players, watch the videos, negotiate all the players. Um, you know, they trust me, you know, quite a lot. So that, that, that's good. Unlike other clubs in this country, you know, coaches, you lose two games, you get sacked. Some co- some teams go through two coaches a season um, and someone else picks the, the players for them. So I'm, very, I'm in a very, very fortunate position. Obviously, it's hard being away from home. Um, but, you know, the, the owners each year backs me every year. So, you know, I'd like to repay them Obviously, it's hard to say we're going to win the title, but I think with the team we've got, we've, we've got a chance to challenge anyway. Ah, good stuff. And it's obviously going to be an interesting and a, a demanding season. We, we, we spoke about it earlier. It's, for anyone who's not familiar with it, the um, the league's going to be running a, a bio bubble, so to speak, in Calcutta, where all the teams will just be based there for a, a really 
truncated four-month season, which that must be really difficult to try and prepare for as well on a, on a mental level. Well, it's, it's hard because what, what you do is um, last season, we did play the IFA Shield. We came off a plane, played the IFA Shield. Obviously, we won it. Um, and then after that, like this season, we're having four or five weeks training in, in Kashmir first for fitness and high altitude training and, you know, obviously whatever we need to do, get the team together. And then we go to Kolkata play IFA Shield again. And then, you know, what happens is it's it's, it's strange because we go in a, a seven, a 10 day, sorry, 10 day um, quarantine. So you're stuck in a hotel room. You're not allowed out of your hotel room. Um, they, they knock on the door, they leave food, almost like airplane food um, at the door. So you don't see anyone. Um, and the hard part is trying to keep the players fit because you can't even go into any, any other person's room. There's an AIFF guy stands and, and watches 24 hours a day. Um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's the longest 10 days ever. Um, and then after that, um, you're allowed to sort of move about, but only in your corridor. Um, you can go room to room. You only get down in the lift for, tra- uh, for for meals and for training. So you only get 90 minutes of daylight a day. Um, it's very difficult. Um, so it's going to be, I think we've done it before, so we can do it again. But the first time it was it was horrific. A lot of people think I'm mad coming back and maybe I am, but um, just the, I think just the passion I've got for the club um, and, you know, you know, I've, I've been part of the whole journey, so it'd be hard to walk away from this. Do you have any ambitions yourself to kind of return back to Scotland in a kind of managerial role yourself? Yeah, I'd, at some point I'd like to. Um, um, but again, like I say, it's this is the it's an incredible job. You know, it's one of the as I say, it's a great job, great situation. I mean, it's just obviously in the, in the wrong place. You know, too far away from home. And um, like I said, I'd, I'd obviously like to come back uh, to Scotland at some point, but. Um, whether that's to work or, or retire or maybe I'm just getting too old I don't know um, time will tell but it would be very very difficult to leave this club and our, our owner Sandeep um, as I say he's been a, a fantastic person to me and my family ah, good stuff and like we wish you all the best for the upcoming season uh, fingers crossed you can you can pull one off in that bio bubble yeah fingers crossed yeah David look we really really appreciate your time um, joining us on, on the ABZ Football Podcast and We'll wrap things up just now. Um, I'm aware it's getting on, obviously, at your time now as well. Um, and this is a question that we ask all of our guests um, to wrap things up. And, and that would just simply be, what does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? Um, it, it's it's also it's a, it's a club that's close to my heart. I've sort of grew up watching Aberdeen. Um, I've seen the, the glory days. I've been fortunate enough to play, you know, win a couple of cups and, and be a part of a reasonably successful team. And, you know, obviously it, it says a lot I'm back when I'm back there, I live in Aberdeen as well. So it's um like I say, it's a it's a special club for me. Um a club I grew up supporting. Um, you know, I went with my dad and who's sadly not here any anymore. So um a lot of memories with my time both playing and, and going to watch watch Aberdeen and um, you know, obviously I can still keep looking out for for what's going on there and you know, hopefully those days will come back again soon. I know it's going to be tough, but um, fingers crossed. Absolutely. Fingers crossed. David Robertson, top man. Thanks very much for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. And that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And please remember to like, subscribe, follow, whatever on your podcast player of choice. Join us next week for episode 17, where we'll review our SPFL Premiership visit of Motherwell 
As we head into the international break, we will take a look back over the side's progress since the last one. We'll also take our usual look at the women's team and our youth setup before we round things off with an exclusive interview with Boyhood Aberdeen fan who got the golden opportunity to play for the Dons and was recently appointed as Aberdeen's new youth phase manager. It's Stuart Duff. Look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Aber Necessities. Aber Necessities received an incredible donation earlier this year of an office building, which will serve as our new HQ. By ramping up our efforts and expanding to our headquarters, we can continue to ensure that we can support vulnerable families across Aberdeen City and Shire. We would like to invite your business to sponsor a room at our new headquarters. This is an opportunity for your business to support Aber Necessities and invest in the future of our children. By sponsoring a room, you're opening the door to a young person's future. So let's work together. Please get in touch with us about sponsorship opportunities today by contacting us at info at arbornecessities.co.uk.